What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Muscle, and this is another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast. And today, we have a really special guest in the building. Listen, this is a Grammy Award winner. This is an artist and talent management. This is also a music business educator. And most of all, he's a record producer. You know, we have in the building today, we have Mr. Jeremy Harden in the building today. What's going on, big boss? What's up, Sheldon? What's up, everybody out there? How you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us here on the Entertainment Report podcast today. No problem, man. It's, it's an honor. I watched, a, I watched a few episodes on YouTube. High quality. Very high Our, quality. I love it. Coming from somebody like you, that definitely means a lot. You understand? I appreciate it, man. Let's go. What, what are we talking about today? Everything? Today we're, yeah, we're talking about the journey as much as we could actually get in in this conversation. Because I know when it comes to you, you've done so much and you still are doing so much. So we're going to bring it right from beginning and try to bring it right up to 2023. So the first thing I usually like to ask is, where did you grow up and what type of child were you? Wow. Well, I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. Um I went to music school here as a kid, as well as going to regular school. I used to go to music school on the weekends, on a Saturday, and on a Wednesday. It's now everybody knows as the Edna Manley College of um, Performing Arts. Um, back then, it was just called the Jamaica School of Music. Um, I was into football as a kid, as most young Jamaican kids are. I play a little bit of cricket. Um, grew up in Upper St. Andrew, which is considered uptown Kingston. I didn't grow up rich by any means, but uh, my dad was involved in um, politics and he was a senator and he was attorney general. And uh, my mom did horticulture and, you know, entered competitions and, and did other business. And, you know, so we kind of grew up in that sort of, that sort of background. I in think that type of environment. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean... You know, the, lo- the love for music, I think. Both sides of my family, I think my, probably for my dad, when he was in college, away at school, he went to McGill University, and he used to sing back then, like, you know, um, Sammy Davis Jr., like that kind of stage performance type singing. So he, he definitely, I think, instilled that love of music in me as a child. And uh, when he used to carry me and my brother, Zachary, to school, he used to play CDs in the car on the drive to school. And he used to play a lot of classical music CDs. So he, you know, a big stack of CDs with shoes every morning. You know what I'm saying? We're listening to Bach, Beethoven, or, you know I mean, whoever, Mozart, etc. I think that kind of helped shape a lot of that early musical stuff. But, you know, my dad was a, is a professional, mm-hmm. you know, as an attorney, and we grew up in that sort of background. Um, foreign service, diplomat. Uh, so we grew up going to a lot of events with like, you know, luminaries and pol- other politicians and and things like that. So it kind of sort of had that background. Um, so you, you were growing up. you were cultured. You you got to see a lot of stuff that uh, I guess a lot of kids growing up in Jamaica at that time wouldn't get to see. Yeah, that would be fair to say. Uh, a good deal of exposure. Um, as you were saying, meeting people from different cultures and like going to a lot of events and you know having to learn like a lot of things about uh, you know I guess you know just like decorum in general and. In politics, not in the sense of, you know, actual politics in the government, but politics in terms of like how to interact with different people at different points in time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of the definition of politics, to be honest with you. You know what I'm saying? And, and to get the best results. So, so yeah, a lot of that was sort of, I think, um, instilled in me from a very young age. 
from there? And even what growing up, what did you think you were going to get into at that time there? To be honest with you, when I was really young, I had a really, the music bug caught me from very early. My mom used to say that, you know, for me to brush my teeth, should I think it's a musical toothbrush? Like, you know, you press the handle and it plays like a little tune. And mm-hmm. she used to, she used to catch me. We had like one of those old time um, record players in the house. Um, what was it like Gerard or one of those companies that make mm-hmm. like, like a big cabinet like yep. this. And when you lift the lids on the top, you had the turntable in here and then you had a receiver. And then like you pull the drawers in the bottom and you could put all the, the, your records inside there. It was like a big piece of furniture. Um, and um, yeah, she used to catch me as a little kid going in there like uh, two, three in the morning. And I'd be putting on records on the little, <laughs> on the turntable player. Like, I mean, like a four-year-old. And he's like, what are you doing? Go to your bed. I was just obsessed with like just trying to hear music or things to do with music. So I think from a very young age, that kind of the music thing sort of, got into me and which led to me asking to go to music school, learning to play guitar. And then by the time I was about 15, 16, I actually wanted to be a guitarist in a band. Like that was, you just asked me like, what did I want to be when I grew up? Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, my father is is very well accomplished in his field. You know what I'm saying? Dr. Oswald Harding. So when you look at that, it's kind of hard for you to say, I want to emulate dad. Cause he was like, that's done so much in this field. I need to do my own thing. I think that drove it a lot too. So let me say, let me go totally 360, not the law, not the politics. Uh, let me do music. Cause I just really, really loved it. And I think I wanted to play in a band. We had bands in high school and, you know, played at the, you know, school barbecues and things like that. And I played guitar in the band, but I, I like directly was saying to myself, I'd love to be in a band, be a touring guitar player and, and, and you know, I'm saying I'd be a musician. At that time. So even in school, you got into the band and all of those stuff there while you were in school too. Yeah, because a couple of guys from school actually went to the music school on the weekends with me as well. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So we're all like at the same high school, go to the music school. So we were learning. At the time, we like rock reggae stuff. So we used to play like a lot of um, the police. And we used to play like, you know, Aswad, Steel Pulse, mm-hmm. um, Chalice, um, Third World. You know what I'm saying? Like that kind of reggae um black uhuru you know mm-hmm. reggae stuff but like driving kind of reggae stuff and we'd add more kind of rock elements into it and and that you know tears of fears bands like that which we used to to try and emulate and and, and the covers of and do some originals too at the same time mm-hmm. um out of police influence too actually whole lot of police influence so you were listening to to reggae and what type of other music were you listening to at this time here now as your because you said your dad would play the classical and stuff but what type of music were you choosing to listen to so at that time in kingston here we used to go and get records from local record shops so there's one shop called record plaza which was down on the on the on the, on the plaza and and we used to go and buy records or cassettes or if we couldn't find it there you'd have to wait for somebody who was going abroad coming back from Miami or New York or somewhere and ask them, could you buy, you know what I mean, this, this record from me or this cassette. So it's kind of like what was available at the time. So it was a lot of, I grew up in the 70s and high school in the 80s. So it was actually lots of disco and post-disco music that we're listening to. So it was a lot of like um, um, Cameo, Slave, uh, Evelyn Champagne King, Luther Vandross, um, Michael Jackson, Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. And then on the other side, you had like the kind of more commercial rock stuff, like, you know, the John Cougar Mellencamp and, uh, you know, when Van Halen came in to jump and um, what else was the rock record? Cause, you know, Joan Jett and the Black Arts, uh, Black Arts, I Love Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, things like that. So is that sort of kind of that arrow of that kind of rock stuff here to big here? That was the big here arrow. Yeah, just like kind of just before the real, yeah, the big here we got to high school, like, Mm -hmm. you know, then yeah, definitely into like, you know, the rat and the Bon Jovi and Scorpions and like all this kind of rock stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. And MTV was a big thing in Jamaica. Kids started to get satellite dishes mm-hmm. at, their, at their, their homes, like massive satellite dishes that they put on the lawn, their parents put or on the roof of their house, bro. I mean, look like something you'd see on CNN, like broadcast satellite dishes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And kids would be there programming a box and we could get MTV. So what we used to do in school is that, I mean, you talk about like mixtapes and trading tapes, but back then the kids used to record and I know this is a very uptown experience. A lot of people might be like laughing at it, but I'm going to share the story the same way. Mm-hmm. But the kids used to record VHS tapes of like MTV, like leave it running overnight, record like six hours and come to school and share the VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. So those same VHS tapes would kind of like make a round. So everybody would go home and you like put in, you could watch like, you know, Headbangers Ball or you could watch your MTV raps or those shows which came out, you know what I mean? And that's how we would get music. Mm-hmm. The source for the dancehall music was from the street cassettes that you would find like in Halfway Tree mm-hmm. and in other places like that, that kids would buy and bring to school. So then they would bring street cassettes from street dances. So, you know what I mean? So you get, you know, Metro Media, you know what I mean? And, and, and Roadstar cassettes and, and, you know, Jaro, you know, Stone Love, like all those things, you know, Exodus, Exodus 4x4, Sturgav. You know what I'm saying? Like all these wicked sound cassettes. Because we were too young and we had no access to going to actual dance, to be honest okay. with you. So, that, so we had that balance of like that lived experience of having that influence of the music from the States on MTV on one hand. Mm-hmm. And then also have the access to like listen to the cassettes from the downtown sound system. I think that sort of molded my entire generation of like all the kids who went to high school in the 80s pretty much. And, and maybe some of the early 90s, that their whole experience um, uh, growing up mm-hmm. here in Jamaica. From there, because I know you went through high school. You finished high school, I think, when you were 15. I finished high school at 15, um, and I went to a boarding school in Ottawa. Mm. Uh, so it's the equivalent of, like in Jamaica, we have sixth form, like after first the fifth form, and then we have sixth form, which is two years, and then normally you go to college, right? So uh, I call it grade 12 and 13 then. Um, is how the system would work. So when I left here at grade 11, quote unquote, so I went and did two years um, in Ottawa at a school called Ashbury College, boarding school. Um, nice experience, real boarding school, like how you think of like, you know, you watch like Harry Potter the movie, like that kind of boarding school. <laughs> like we live upstairs, the classrooms would come down, everybody's wearing a blazer with a school tie, mm-hmm. we sit around a big lunch table and we have houses and bro, just like Harry Potter, mm-hmm. without the magic, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, But it was fun. And a good cultural experience, too, because that was the first exposure to come outside of Jamaica and interact with other cultures and other peoples. So all of a sudden, you're dropped into a scenario where I'm at a boarding school in Ottawa, Canada, um, which shows there because my, my dad is uh, has Canadian citizenship, and so me and my brother have Canadian citizenship. So it would make sense for us to go to school mm-hmm. and take advantage of our education. And so you, you get dropped into a scenario where there's like 1,300 kids in the school and like... 10 kids of color mm-hmm. in the whole school between boarding school and the, what I call the day students. Mm-hmm. So it was like myself, uh, another friend of mine from Jamaica, another uh, a girl from Jamaica, two, a guy from Barbados, two guys from Barbados, um, one Trinidadian kid, 
uh, I think a Nigerian guy, a guy from Tanzania. Um, I've gone 10 years, <laughs> but this was, this was just all little crew. You know what I mean? A couple of Canadian kids that grew up in the, in Barbados still. So they kind of knew the culture. Um, my roommate was from the Bahamas and, uh, he has Ghanese extract. So within the one little boarding school, we had all little crew. And then of course we're now interacting with Canadian kids and kids from the States, the U S that came to Canada to boarding school, kids from Japan that came kids from Mexico, South America. Musically, what it did, however, was bring together like this is the first real exposure now to this other kinds of music different from the ones I've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. So this is now being in a dorm in a boarding school and you you you're walking down the hall and everybody's playing their own music in the hall as you're walking down. So you could kind of walk and listen and like pop into somebody's room and say, Hey, what's up? and hang out and hear what they're hearing. So now all of a sudden I'm listening to Depeche Mode. I'm listening to um the Who. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to Billy Idol. I'm listening to um, Talk Talk. I'm listening to Talking Heads. I'm listening to um, Pet Shop Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, Leonard Cohen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and again, like all the other kind of stuff where I had to catch up on, like the Doors, the Beatles, like that earlier stuff, which is very much ingrained in a North American kids' experience of the music they grew up on, but which in Jamaica, you wouldn't grow up listening to The Doors and Jim Morrison. Why, why would you ever listen to that? Why would you just that's too far, far back. Yeah. Way too far and just culturally too different. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? But that exposure, listening to all that, that kind of music too. And at the time, hip-hop had taken this turn where it got super interesting with Public Enemy. You know, Nation of Millions to hold us back, and that kind of started. And uh, the Public Enemy and Anthrax collab, and you know, what I mean, all the, so the strains of kind of like this early, really um, politically motivated rap music started happening too. You know yeah. what I'm saying? At the same time, so we're also listening to that because the kids that listen to the punk music and Sex Pistols and and stuff like that also listen to Public Enemy because it was it's the same music at the time. <laughs> it was the same teen angst the system kind of music mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it's a it's a it's a potpourri of musical influences leaving jamaica with my particular background having that kind of uptown lived experience with the mtv mixed with the with the with the grassroots stuff that we get off the street cassettes and then coming up to to ottawa and all of a sudden hearing like you know all of this pop rock classic rock music punk music all this kind of stuff so you know, it's a, it's a total, you know, mix and blend of all of these things that is shaping my musical experience, you know, up until the age of, man, probably up until 18, 19, 20, somewhere around there, still kind of, you know, being shaped at that point in time. And when did you actually decide to DJ? Because you said first you went into the band and stuff like that. So then when did you go from now band to wanting to become a DJ? I think what really happened is that even though I realized I want to be a guitarist, I think when I actually went to university, I got to McGill University, got to Montreal, uh, one roommate actually played guitar, another one played bass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're there like kind of fooling around and stuff, but nowhere in sort of like a bigger city where we could go out and go to clubs and bars and hear people play. And I think at that point in time, you start to, start to kind of realize that the level of musicianship um, at that age was much higher than I could, uh, I could accomplish or achieve. So I sort of said to myself, like, you know what? You love playing guitar. You're not really good enough though, to kind of hang with these sort of, you know, band members and like the musical vocabulary required to be a guitarist too. I mean, I was still playing catch up because remember I just learned about ACDC like two years ago <laughs> in boarding school. These kids grew up on it, like from their siblings listening to it or some of them, maybe even their dads, you know what I'm saying? 
So I think at that point in time, Montreal definitely had a, a, a huge influence because Montreal is a very exciting college party town, especially, you know, at that time. For sure. You know, I mean, it's very condensed, um, you know, you know, one subway line up and down. You got Concordia, you got McGill, you got La Salle College. So all of these students are converging in, in very, a, a very small footprint. Mm-hmm. So the nightclub scene was ridiculous. Like just strips with like bar, 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 going all the way up the strip, packed every freaking night. <laughs> so it would be hard to resist that scene. And I ended up falling into that nightclub scene, um, meeting a, another person on campus. His name is Dave Wexler, big up Dave, who lives in New York, was from Manhattan. And Dave is the one that got me into DJing. <laughs> and so Dave... When I was on the dorm, somebody said, you need to meet this kid who really loves reggae. You know what I mean? He's just a reggae fanatic. I went and met Dave, and Dave was one of these dudes like in his dorm room listening to like scientists and Mad Professor and Lee Scratch Perry. You know what I mean? And, you know, heavy, heavy kind of dub stuff like mm-hmm. that. And, and my experience at the time, Jamaican kids didn't grow up listening to dub, definitely not at my age, 70s and 80s. We listened to dancehall and some of reggae, but not really dub. So... I would come and kind of get that education from him. And then at the same time, too, I was hipping him to the new dancehall stuff. Cause I was like, yo, bro, you ever heard about Tiger? And he's like, nah, who's that? I know Yellow Man. I was like, okay, this is the next generation of guys after Yellow Man. Do you know Shabba? Do you know? He's like, yeah, man, I know Shabba and whatsoever. So it kind of started from there. And we had frat parties at McGill and uh, the fraternity houses would have parties. And he always said, like, he hated the music at the frat parties. He wanted, they said, dude, we should totally DJ music at these frat parties. I'm like, I don't even know what DJing, what are you talking about? He's like, nah, because he had like a, a turntable. He had a one twelve hundred in his room. He had a cassette deck. And then in the dorm, they had like sound equipment um, for hall parties. But their sound equipment was like Surin Vega boxes, bro, and like Newmark mixers and stuff, like real DJ equipment. You know what I mean? So he went and dug up that stuff. So we kind of cobbled together like a little kind of sound system that from the hall that we could walk around with and do frat parties. So um, we used to do the same, like everybody talks about the, the tape mixing, like when you queue up the cassette and put on pause and then release the pause button and then slide the fader. <laughs> so we would do that. So we'd queue up stuff on cassettes and we had one turntable. He had some vinyl. And uh, we'd go and DJ these frat parties. So of course, we'd, we'd DJ all the music that the frat guys love to hear. You know, Louie, Louie. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like all that kind of music. And wild thing. Ding, 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 ding. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But then he would like drop in like, you know, you know, second Mr. Cat and work over and mash it up. Mud up, mud up. And like, because he loved dancing and reggae, right? So <laughs> so we'd be mixing like Super Cat with like all of, with the trogs, bro. I like these frat parties. And the frat kids were like going crazy. They're like, yo, it's reggae. It's wicked. <laughs> so we're having a ball. Let's like messing with them. And of course, he was from New York too, so he grew up on his hip hop stuff. So then we'd also be playing like, you know, the bridge is over, the bridge is over, but bye bye. You know what I mean? And we, so we imagine that kind of party here in KRS One, Super Cat, you know what I'm saying? And ACDC, like all mixing to one frat. It's house. a real mashup. <laughs> yeah, man. Our kids are going nuts. Mm-hmm. So that leads to him saying, dude, we should totally get a radio show. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So we had campus radio, CKUT, 90.3 FM, big up, big up um, CKUT in Montreal. That's my family right there. <laughs> and we started doing filling slots on the radio. So he called me and be like, well, he couldn't call me. We didn't have cell phones. What the hell did we do? I don't even know. I guess he'd come to my dorm room and hit me up and be like, yo, we have, um, there's a filling slot 
Um, I checked earlier at the station and there's a slot tonight from two to four, like a Tuesday night or, you know what I mean? I'm like, bro, are you serious? Bro, we totally got to do it. I mean, we're in school, you know. But anyway, so we'd forego to sleep, stay up or wake up and go and go and log crates of records a um, few blocks to the radio station, take a taxi and carry them there. Even in the winter, and we go play this radio show from two to four in the morning. Now remember, it's a filling slot, mm. and it's college radio, so we can play whatever we want. Nobody cares. First of all, everybody's sleeping. Number one, number two, it's college radio. You're not really sanctioned by anything. You can kind of do what you want to do. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So we would just take opportunity and play all kind of music. We'd play house records again. His New York influence. So he was coming like with a whole kind of, you know, Paradise Garage kind of house music kind of scene, um, kind of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd bring that house records. Um, I'd go home at Christmas break, Easter break, summer, and I'd load up on the dancehall records and come back with the 45s. And he would come back with the hip-hop as well. And so we started DJing on the radio, and eventually that led to us getting our own show. Uh, it was a Tuesday 3 to 5, and it was called DJ Genius and the Prophet. So he's, he was, his name was David. So he, he was like the prophet. And I, I like that song, Genius of Love, by Tom Tom Club, was my influence to use the name DJ Genius. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah we ran that radio show and the show was called Native Tongues because we both had a love for that style of hip hop so we both love Jungle Brothers and De La Soul and you know what I'm saying and all that kind of stuff um, so yeah we had this radio show and we cranked out the show for like five years I guess in Montreal I think he left maybe after the first two or three because he had to focus more on his studies and I continued it and I had local kids from the area MCs and people like that used to come and co-host the show with me and we did that, which leads to us now DJing parties in Montreal, because now you're on the radio, you have a radio show, so people reach out to you, like, oh, can you come and play a night at the club, or can you come and play this party? So that started this whole kind of career of getting into that side of the music. By this time now, I already pawned the guitar at a pawn shop. I used the money to stamp by <laughs> DJ equipment, because I was like, screw this guitar stuff, this yeah. is way more exciting, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I ended up with one 1200 techniques, and he had one 1200 techniques, and then I think we shared the cost. And, oh, I think I bought a mixer, like a mm-hmm. Newmark mixer or something. And he owned some, or whatever. It was pool equipment that we both shared together and used to go on DJ with. Until we started getting like club gigs and stuff, you know what I mean, in the area. That led to a whole thing of DJing and DJing parties and DJing nightclubs. Till eventually, after second year of McGill, halfway through second year, I just decided that I really wanted to do music full time. And I, another friend who I'd met, um, in the, in the club scene, a friend of mine named Eric Pringle, he was like, yo, there's a recording art school here you should check out if you don't want to be in regular school. Mm-hmm. And it's called uh, Trabas. Mm-hmm. So I went and checked out Trabas and told my parents, this is what I want to do. Of course, they weren't impressed. Like, the son is dropping out of McGill after a year and a half to go to some music school. But at least they were happy I was going to a school. I think it would have been worse just to say to them, Oh, I just want to go DJ. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they said, okay, fine. So they supported the move. And I, I went to Trabas and that was two years there to the Trabas. So I'm doing Trabas. I'm learning, you know, record production, engineering. And now I'm DJing professionally mm-hmm. because my dad's opinion was like, well, you're a Canadian citizen. You have a social insurance card, security, what's it called? You can work. Mm-hmm. You can get a job. I'm not supporting you anymore if you're not in college, college. <laughs> so he's like, go fend for yourself. So I said, okay. So I ended up working as a doorman mm-hmm. um, and a bouncer at nightclubs and bars. 
um, more specifically Peel Pub in Montreal. I was there for a few years mm-hmm. and DJing and other nights. So some nights I'd be doorman and some nights I'd be DJing basically <laughs> at clubs and stuff. And that was kind of like, you know, that was how I was making by and paying my rent and, and you know, and, and trying to trying to make it. So that's sort of that chapter of, of music. Right um, there. Because yeah, what right were you there. even taking in university in the first place before you even transferred over to Trabas? I, I was doing chemical engineering, man. I was doing, my stuff was chemistry and mathematics, advanced math and calculus and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I'd done like, you know, top 10% in IB exams in math in Canada and like all this. <laughs> As a math guy, bro. Totally. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you decided, you know what? I don't want to do math. I want to play records in a nightclub. And clearly, clearly, your parents would not be impressed with that at all. I mean, the weird thing is that like the music bug just would leave Sheldon. You know what I'm saying? So it came mm-hmm. from sort of like you're playing guitar as a kid and you're singing in the choir and then you kind of come now and you you got into this DJing thing and you know want to play records and then that kind of leads you to Trebass and now I'm actually learning how to make records in the studio work with other kids and engineers. So there was always like this theme of like something to do with music continues regardless. You know what I'm saying? Like it just, it just wouldn't go away is what I'm saying to you. It just kept changing into different, into different, you know, forms as I kept growing up as I, as a young man, you know? And then when was the first time you actually put all the theory into practice now? Cause you went to Trabas to learn music production stuff. So when was the first time you actually tried to, or even did produce something? Well, now remember I'm on the radio. So back then the whole thing about playing on the radio and being a DJ is that you're the producer, right? If you're, if you're, you know, the DJ of the group, you know, you're DJ premier and gangster and you're also the producer. You know what I'm saying? If you're Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Jazzy Jeff is a producer. If you're, whatever, all the rap groups at the time, the, the DJ was the producer. You know what I'm saying? So the local kids started to look to me to be like, okay, well, if you DJ, then you, you must can produce beats. On top of the fact I'm going to Trebass. Now, there are other kids who are DJing that were attempting to produce as well, and they were doing local demos for kids there. So I kind of fit into the fold with them, but also now bring in some of the experience of, of, of Trebass, of actually like, you know, educated engineering, not just like, you know, kids just with turntables only and, and a four track, but I'm also bringing a little bit more because I'm actually going to Trebass. So basically, now that leads to wanting to produce local kids in the area. They come by the TV show. And then I, I met a, another pr- a friend of mine who was a promoter at a nightclub, and he knew these kids as well. He's like, yo, let's join forces. I'll manage the kids, and you'll be the producer. So then now I'm setting up like a little makeshift bedroom studio. I got my turntables. Um, I got one sampler and a one keyboard, and I had a four-track machine, mm-hmm. and I had something else. I had the usual tape decks and stuff like that. And you know, the usual story about the long microphone cables into the bathroom to record the vocal and stuff like that. So yeah, bro. So then I'm, I'm producing now, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm, I have using my four track machine and I'm making a loop in a sampler. And I, I don't think we didn't have like a sequence or anything at the time. I don't remember how we did it to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but putting together beats on four track cassette. But the difference with me is that I was playing on the radio. So I could take these demos and go and play them on the radio. So these kids would hear, you know, EPMD song and then hear their song. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like right after it. So it's a big deal because even though it's college radio, um, Montreal, and to this day, I think, doesn't have its own urban music station. Like Toronto eventually got urban station. Like you guys, have, like you had floor or whatever. Floor, floor a while. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know what I'm saying? But Montreal never did. So the, 
So the so the college radio like CKUT is the de facto urban station for the city. So it's not just the college radio station. It's where all of the urban music is. Mm-hmm. So if hip hop is being played in Montreal, that's where you're going to find it. When the hip hop acts come to Montreal to perform, they're going to advertise on that station. The music is played on that station, which really means that the kids I'm producing are playing on the same station as these guys. So they end up being the opening acts for the guys when they come to town. So then now I'm opening for people. So I have my crew of rappers who I'm producing and we're getting all the gigs for the opening slots. So now, you know, House of Pain comes to Montreal and I'm opening with my guys. I'm on the stage DJing for them, playing my beats that I made with them. They're rapping with the songs which are played on local radio, which the Montreal kids are very familiar with because we have the radio show. <laughs> so, you know, we're we're rocking the scene, bro. So everybody who came to town, we're opening for them. So Tone Loke, Ice Cube, um, uh, uh, De La Funky, Homo Sapien, um, Public Enemy, uh, House of Pain. Um, what am I missing? Um, Rap Bass. Um, bro, any and anybody who came to Montreal at the time, any of those crews that came through, uh, we were the opening act for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? All over the city. So I'm sort of some radio disc jockey and I'm a stage DJ and I'm also the producer and producing these kids as well. So yeah, that definitely... Now, by now I've finished Trebass, I've done the two years. Mm-hmm. So I'm out there thinking like, oh, well, maybe now I could be a producer. So it went from being a guitarist to being a DJ now to thinking, well, maybe I could be a producer. You know what I mean? And actually make tracks and make beats for people. From that point there, so then you still had your reggae, rock, and all of that background, but you decided to go fully into hip-hop at this point here, no? Well, there was nothing else to do with the rock stuff, because as I said, I kind of felt like I wasn't talented enough to be like an actual rock musician, you know what I'm saying, and actually playing the band, number one. And number two, there wasn't really any scene for that in Montreal where I was living anyway, to play rock or be in bands. I mean, you had local bands around the place, but very far and few between, and very French, you know what I'm saying? And just in that kind of community. And so I wasn't connected to that at all. And the reggae stuff, funnily enough, like I was there with the scene, you know, because I'm DJing reggae on the radio mm-hmm. and I'm playing all the nightclubs with the reggae and the dancehall stuff. There were other dancehall DJs in the city and reggae DJs, now, but most of them weren't hardcore dancehall distractors. You understand? Most of them were like reggae shows that played mm-hmm. some amount of dancehall. But I think my show with Dave at the time, our show, we played hardcore dance song, like considered hardcore at the time, because I could come back to Jamaica and get the juggling records like straight out of Aquarius. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't find that stuff up there in Montreal. You know what I'm saying? So I could come up there and be playing, you know what I mean? Like just the music that those guys couldn't get. You know what I mean? So it's not that I'd given up on the reggae or the dance hall, but that was sort of like my DJing life had the reggae and the dance hall. Because I was kind of known as like a wicked dancehall DJ who him and his partner played dancehall and hip hop. And we'd do those parties. But as a producer, it was really working with hip hop kids because, I mean, the, the few dancehall kids in Montreal it wasn't enough to make a scene that you would have bothered to be trying to produce those guys or they wouldn't get any opportunity to really go and perform anywhere. So it was kind of split. And then by this time, now I'm in the club scene in Montreal and trying to work and make a living. And to do that in the real nightclubs on the strips, you'd have to play house music. Mm-hmm. You understand? So yeah, I could bring the dancehall into there and I could get to play dancehall parties outside of downtown or reggae parties. But in order to work downtown, downtown proper, like in a real 
proper nightclubs like Hold On or Residency, you had to play house music. Mm -hmm. So now I'm DJing house, you know, as well. So what's putting food on the table is DJing house music in the nightclubs. What what is the the, the personal expression was like learning to be a producer and producing these rap kids. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then like sort of like the, the urban base was to play the dancehall and the hip-hop parties at the promoters. I in, Unfortunately, bro, you know how this goes like, I hate to say it, but you know, when you work with the, with the, with the you know, the, the it's going to sound bad, but we're just going to talk the things, right? You work with the white French people in the nightclubs, they pay you on time and your money is good. You work with the West Indian promoters, like out in the burbs, bro, like at the end of the night, you're, boy, you want to say, you know? Man, I'm supposed to get hundred dollar, but boy, brother, you know, said man, them teeth me have to get like some big story always happens, bro. After you have logged the records out there, paid taxi, you and your brethren. Mm -hmm. So it was always tough to remain like DJing in that scene because you're always fighting with promoters, bro. And I remember once one of them had this this nightclub that wasn't set up properly, mm -hmm. a urban music promoter, and he's like, yeah, man. Genius, you can bring your turntables, though, genius. I was like, bro, I don't really like bringing my turntables nowhere. Like, it's a club, man. You guys are supposed to have the equipment. He's like, nah, man, but true said this and true said that. Big long story, Sheldon. Anyway, I said, all right, I'll, just, I'll carry one of my turntables. He said, just bring one. Mm -hmm. So I bring one. And the way they used to set up the, the DJ booths in Montreal is that they used to have the records floating in the tape in the turntables floating in the in the in the table they cut out a square to put this turntable in and they'd string up one two three four hooks at the bottom like underneath the table mm -hmm. i use these big rubber bands and make like an x pattern like this okay so you could take the turntable and rest it in the slot and it would float on these rubber bands the whole idea was that it's for the vibrations in the nightclub so like when the bass is booming like it wouldn't shake and the needle wouldn't bounce off of the thing <laughs> you understand me? No, mind you, you can't like really scratch on two records properly because it's floating on a damn it's rubber floating, band, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so when you move it with your hand, of course, it's wobbling and you're like, ooh, I'm trying to stabilize the thing. But those clubs usually play dance music. So those guys weren't queuing up and scratching nothing. They would find a cue or just kind of push and then, you know, sit down there and catch the thing and fade or whatever. <laughs> so the point being is that I'm carrying my turntable to put it in one of these slots, is what I'm trying to explain to you. <laughs> so I put the damn turntable in the slot, bro, and the fucking rubber bands break and the turntable, my finger catches on the arm and the thing crashes to the floor. <clears throat> it's my personal turntable. <clears throat> so they got a replacement. By the end of the night, I took one of his turntables back to my house. <laughs> and he's like, wait, genius, what are you doing with the turntable? I was like, well, mine broke. Yeah, man, but you're I'll try to get that one fixed for you. I said, no, no, when you get it fixed and I'll give it back, I'm keeping <laughs> this one. Big yeah. argument, bro. Because I'm just like, nah, bro. You guys are supposed to provide this equipment for us as DJs. Like, you make me bring my personal thing. Your setup's shot. You know what I'm saying? Shot is set up and like, start to like teeth, teeth his fucking turn. Well, yeah. that teeth. What? You know what I'm Exchange, saying? Exchange, hey, hey. This, this is yeah, working. Yeah, I yeah, bro, something working. So, so take this. Bro, that's what I'm saying, bro. Like, so this is what you have to deal with, like, in the kind of urban scene. The other nice clubs, you know, your bonjour, ça va, uh, Jeremy, everything is good, hey. You know what I'm saying? And you're playing the club and those guys are end of the night, they come, they pay you, no problem. You know what I'm saying? They're going to give you extra sometime. You'll be like, wow, this is mm -hmm. nice working in the house music clubs. You know what I'm saying? Them guys are on point. The equipment is immaculate. The sound systems were incredible. You know what I'm saying? That technicians in the club, if something wrong, they call a tech guy, he'd run over and swap a turntable and do something. I'm like, this is a nightclub. Like these guys, 
You know what I mean? A whole different experience, bro. Whole different experience. Crazy there. So you're doing your stuff. You're you're existing in basically three different worlds. So then what made you decide to move to Toronto now after your Montreal experience? You know, I love Montreal and I always will love Montreal. And I was there for so many years, but it kind of felt like there was a glass ceiling at a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really get much further. I didn't speak French. Uh, I wasn't French Canadian. You know, I wasn't white, obviously. And it kind of felt like there was nowhere else to go. And then the club scene to, you know, was, you know, really heavily influenced by the LGBTQ community before it was even called LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't a part of that community as well, it felt difficult for you to kind of break through to the really upper echelons of of the club scene or the music scene in general. Mm -hmm. And at a local record shop, I'd met a guy from Toronto named John Adams, um, a.k.a. John Bronsky, and he was working for Street Sound Magazine in Toronto. And he also had a, a program on, me and you discussed this, right? The Master Plan Show was on CIUT, I think. Mm-hmm. And he came in the city and he was putting together a project on Canadian hip-hop. And he was kind of came to visit Montreal to try and check out the scene to see if there are any Canadian rappers that he could get demos from to put on his project that he was doing. So I met him at the record shop. We started talking and the guy, the owner of the shop, um, Annex Bridgen, uh, Christian Pronovo, I'm name dropping in case these guys are <laughs> watching stuff, bro. And they're like, yo, Jeremy didn't call my name. Um, but yeah, Christian introduced me to him and he was basically saying like, yo, this is a guy. If you want to know about it, this guy has the biggest hip hop dancehall radio show in the city. He's also a producer. His kids are opening Fall of the Axe. You know what I'm saying? And he's DJing on the strip right here. And so I met John. Um, and me and him start to go back and forth. And then he'd go back to Toronto. He'd come back and visit. Then he'd come and crash by my place. And we'll talk about music. And eventually it was, you know, he was like, yo, man, you should come to Toronto. Things are jumping off. Um, them time there was, um, bro, you know, it was big in Toronto at that time. Um, um, Dream Warriors, bro. Mm. That was the shit. Dream Warriors was like the big thing. You wash your face in my sink. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And, 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 and then just about the, after that, a maestro fresh West, mm-hmm. bro, you know, let your backbone slide. And like, bro, this is like the biggest old school interview. We're <laughs> 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 like, yo, did these guys talk about, but yeah, man, that was a thing in a time in Toronto, like that was popping. So there was this feeling that something big was going to happen out of Toronto mm-hmm. and you should come there. You know what I mean? The Montreal kind of felt like, bro, you're, you're not, you're, you're a black guy who doesn't speak French in this city and you're not gay like where are you there's no growth here for you in this in the music in the creative space mm-hmm. so yeah so i followed him to toronto and packed up and went to went to toronto and then up at uh, what i was telling you dupont and st george right right in right and, in the heart of the city yeah bro so i was there and i was hoping to pick up from where i was in montreal in toronto Mm-hmm. But I moved to Toronto, of course, nobody knows me. <laughs> so I don't have any, like, I'm not DJ genius. I don't have a radio show. I'm not playing clubs. Like, I'm not producing any kids. Like, absolute zero. And then I get to Toronto, and people are just kind of, oh, yeah, cool. It's John's roommate. This guy, he's from Montreal. And that, it couldn't go any further. We didn't have any internet. Nobody knew about things which are happening in other places. So a guy just knew about his city and what he was doing. You know what I'm saying? Especially so, Toronto is the bigger urban city at that time. So we're not looking towards Montreal. Montreal might well, be looking towards Toronto. Exactly. So that's that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Good point. Exactly. So exactly. So they're kind of just like, okay, what's the deal? Montreal, big deal. So what? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What's sort of like that? Which in all fairness, I mean, you know, they, they, they were right. Because they were the bigger the urban center for, for Canada. 
So I ended up struggling in Toronto that way. So I ended up kind of like regressing. So I'm back working door, hmm. like at bars. I'm bouncing, bro. I'm working at a club called Whiskey Saigon on Queen Street mm-hmm. West. You know what I'm saying? Like checking ID and stuff, bro. Like punch that clock as a doorman. And I'm just like, after doing that for like another year or so, I was like, this is not a forward move for me. I'd met all the guys at the time who were in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Big C and Thrust and you know what I'm saying? Like all these guys. Um, but it just couldn't move forward for me personally. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And my roommate, he was there working and he was working at Sony and you know what I mean? kind of People had their own kind of things happening in Toronto. Of course, Toronto would blow up in latter years and you get this massive scene which you have now. So mm-hmm. that was at that very embryonic stage. Um, but I couldn't fit in um, at that point in time. So, so uh, I ended up coming back to Jamaica. Okay, so how come you didn't decide to probably go back to Montreal and give it another shake instead of just, yo, I'm just going to go to Jamaica? Because Montreal, I said, it kind of felt that would reach the top of where I could reach, bro. I had that like, number one radio show for like five, six years. I knew everybody in the city. I'd worked all the nightclubs from the from the urban clubs down to the industrial house music clubs to the to the to the warehouse club scene. I'd covered it all. I'd been on all the flyers, mm-hmm. and we even got a deal with uh, Sony Canada. Had some sort of Montreal thing set up there. A guy had a student, and he was signing acts. We got a deal with him, and we're a student. We're trying to produce acts as well, and. It just felt like it couldn't go any further. Montreal was very, it's a very localized scene, a fantastic scene, but a very localized scene. Like it doesn't export well, I guess what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Toronto exports well, you know what I'm saying? The, all the hip-hop artists and, you know, the Justin Bieber's and like all those kind of people, it, it exports quite well. Montreal is very insular. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you have people who are Montreal artists and they'll just, they'll do well, but they'll stay within Montreal like forever. You know what I'm saying? No matter whatever genre that is. Mm-hmm. So it just it just didn't feel like going back there didn't really feel like it would have made any any sense. And then to this day, a lot of the people in that scene, my friends, either totally switched jobs and careers, like it's no longer in music at all whatsoever. You know what I mean? And very few of them sort of remained. And the guys who remained, I mean, it's seen as still the same sort of scene. None of, none of them really kind of like, Montreal couldn't be used as a launch pad, I guess. You know what I mean? For them to further their, their musical careers to get to the higher level there so then now you did montreal you yeah. did toronto so you decided to go back to jamaica so when you're going back to jamaica what was your intention going back now well at the time my dad was in politics and he was running for a seat mm-hmm. and um to represent an area and my younger brother was helping him out in the area and he said listen you should really come home to to to, to help us out here with the family and my dad wasn't doing well at the time as well he was ill had a brief illness and everybody's like, yo, you should come home and really need the help. And if nothing's going on for you in Toronto. So at that time, it kind of felt like the dream was ending in Toronto. I mean, like I'm back bouncing the door, bro. You know what I'm saying? Like stand up in the freaking snow, like checking people's ID. I'm like, what the hell? I thought I'd pass all of this five, six years ago. So it sort of just felt like it, it wasn't, I think in my head, you know, I always thought that I would return, but let me just go back to Jamaica for now, regroup, try to help out the family. You know what I mean? And um, and do that and then kind of wheel and come again. Of course, that never happened. I went home and ended up staying and bringing home my equipment mm-hmm. and, um, you know, setting up a, a small studio um, at home in Jamaica, mm-hmm. in Kingston. So you were still producing when you when you went to Jamaica, but it was hip-hop you are producing at this time here now? So, funny enough, I brought down the equipment and I still think 
thought I was going to produce hip hop because I still had a connection with all of my rappers in Montreal. Mm-hmm. You understand? So the whole idea is like, okay, I'm going to come back and produce hip hop and still send them beats. And because I'm thinking, man, I'm eventually going back up there. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I get there with the equipment and I meet a friend who was like, um, he works at an advertising agency. Mm-hmm. I, I meet somebody, he works at an ad agency and he's like, yo, you're into music. I'm into music too. I work at an ad agency, but you know, like I'm in charge of getting the jingles done for the products and stuff like that. I'm saying, oh, wicked cool. Mm-hmm. He's like, have you ever produced jingles? So I say, um, no, I just like ad spots for parties and stuff like that. You know what I mean? I'm not a full-fledged jingle. So he taught me how to produce jingles, basically. He's like, listen, okay, we have a jingle coming up. It's like for a bank. It's for an insurance company. We need something like light and airy. And, you know, these are the lyrics and we have to discuss it. So he taught me how to make jingles. Mm-hmm. So now I'm sitting on there making jingles for a living mm-hmm. and scoring jingles at home and building my own stuff and singing the jingles and even DJing some of the jingles. You know what I'm saying? And you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. So now I'm making jingles and the jingle money was good. Mm-hmm. So now I was advertising my services as making jingles. Oddly enough, still wasn't thinking about producing dancehall or reggaeton, bro. That was the weirdest thing. I think I was still kind of like, all right, I'll do this jingle stuff. It makes money, but still have to work on my beats. And mm-hmm. I felt encouraged, you know, because when you're learning to produce hip hop, what I was learning, you know, you start to learn about how to sample records. So you'd make the trip to New York or even the trip to even the Montreal store. You start like the digging in the crates thing. You get to the whole culture and you start to find, you know, cool looking records to go and sample. Inevitably, what would happen is that I would find records to sample, making my demos for my little artists. But then like big artists would have found the same samples because they're drawing from the same era of funk and soul music. I was doing that. And then, you know, we'd hear like a big artist like Tupac, like doing the same thing like with the same beats, for example. So I felt encouraged that like I'm on the right path mm-hmm. in this hip hop production thing because I'm producing the same kind of tracks with the same samples that I'm finding that the other top guys are sampling. So I was very encouraged to think that it was definitely going to work out at some manner, point in time. It would just be a matter of time. Um, so yeah, still wasn't thinking about producing dancehall, funnily enough. I don't know, it was kind of weird. What happened was my younger brother, Zachary, started a, an a sound system called Syndicate Disco. Mm-hmm. So Syndicate Disco kind of came out of the ashes of Ambassadors and Legend Disco, who was David Muir, big up David, um, who's a photographer, um, lives in Florida right now and doing great things for Jamaican culture in, 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 in Florida. Mm-hmm. And David had a friend of his, and we all went to the same kind of high school. He kind of took over the sound system. Richie West and Richie hired Zachary. He hired um, DJ Arif Kufa, rest in peace. Arif was a very good friend of ours. Um, Arif was also involved in the sound system. Um, left Side um, was also in the sound system mm-hmm. as well as a disc jockey. Zachary gave him the name Left Side, actually, because he... he I'm right-handed, but I DJ with my left hand dominant, mm-hmm. and he does the same type of thing. So when you're DJing with him on the mic, he has to be on your left side, as opposed to most selectors it would be on the... Anyway, just trivial. But that's, So he was part of that crew, and um, Copper Sean, who DJs with Sean Paul, no, he was also part of that crew, Syndicate Disco. So Syndicate was, at the time, a rising uptown sound system, and they used to pair with the Renaissance, mm-hmm. with Jazzy T and Delano and, you know what I mean, Mikey E and Dr. Dre and and those guys. And so, dub plates now were the order of the day. 
So Zachary would come and say, well, you have a studio. Can we do dub plates at your studio? I said, well, we can't actually cut the plates physically because you still have to go and do that down by arrows or wherever you're going. But he says, yeah, but we could do the recordings by you though, right? And we could carry the, 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 the digital audio tapes that the masters down and get the plates cut. So I said, sure, I guess. So that's how it kind of brought dancehall to my doorstep was actually doing dub plates for syndicate. So Zach would find the artists and then bring them up to the studio. And then, you know, my thing was the first digital setup, like in Jamaica, a system called uh, Session 8, which was made by the company Digidesign, which is now Avid, which makes Pro Tools. So this is like a pre-Pro Tools, the eight-track version of, I guess, the you know, what would become Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. But it was first of its kind. Nobody else had that. Everybody else was either your cutter dub, like the actual needle is cutting at the same time, or you have to go to a big studio and use a 24-track tape to record stuff. Nobody had digital recording in Jamaica. So I'm the first guy um, that ever had that on a hard disk, a computer. Sounds weird now, but back then it was like a big deal, bro. Like recording yeah. to a computer, this was like, what sort of wizardry that, that, is this? That's unheard of. A computer? This is what you do to make music? Unheard Bro, of. dude, that, that time, never. So 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 that made the process of cutting dub plates super efficient because now mm-hmm. you could just ask me for a rhythm and I just call it up on screen and just drop it in and just be like, ready. And they'd be like, ready, yeah. And I could stop, pause, we could punch. You know what I mean? Pick somebody up. We could give you the acapella. Mm-hmm. So you could leave and try and do your own remix with it or whatever. We could do, you know what I mean? There's so many things that we could do now in a digital format. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Syndicate is coming. And then, you know, Zachary tells Renaissance. And then Renaissance has come to cut their dub plates. And then they're telling Stone Love. And Stone Love is coming. And Travelers is coming. And Adonai is coming. Then King Adiz is coming. Babyface, like he flies in from New York. He's like, yo, this kid have a wicked digital setup in a jacksail and rare. You know what I mean? So he's telling everybody to come up there to cut dubs. Mm-hmm. So... No, I'm dub cutting place like really up in little uptown, but I'm meeting artists now, Sheldon. You understand? So now all of a sudden I open the door. Here's Capleton. Here's Elephant Man. Here's Killer. Here's, you know what I'm saying? All of these guys are now rolling through. Here's Monster Shack. You know what I'm saying? Like Frisco Kid, like everybody's up here to cut dubs, Spraga Benz. Mm-hmm. I would never have had access to these people and people need to remember at these times there's no social media bro you can't find people on socials you can't DM anybody you don't know what people are doing you're not following anybody you have to have the link to the link bro. to the link to the link precisely, to make it happen precisely precisely you know what I'm saying um, but no these guys are just showing up at my door mm-hmm. you know what I mean because the sound systems are bringing them so then now I'm really like learning my trade cutting dubs basically working with dancehall artists and recording them mm-hmm. that's kind of how it started you know so that leads to somebody saying like well why don't you just try and produce your own rhythm and i was just like produce my own rhythm like what i don't care about dancehall production mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean but the the moral of everything that you keep telling me it's like it always is Somebody said to me, somebody said to me, somebody said to me, somebody said to me, and you just happened to, hmm, let me try it. You didn't know anything about jingles. You tried it. You didn't know anything about DJ. You tried it. Now right. you were, you're producing hip hop beats. Now you're getting into the reggae beats because somebody said, hey, you ever tried this? No, I haven't tried it. Let me just try it. Yeah, pretty much. I never looked at it from that angle before. You're, you're correct. It was really people's suggestions and said, you should just try and do this. Mm-hmm. You know I mean, why don't you try and do that? I think, I don't know, me, me, myself, I think it was just, you know, it's learned experience as you go along. You just, you know, one thing is, 
one thing is funny about how life and things work, you know. Sometimes the things that you love so much are not the things that you're necessarily good at or that people recognize you for. And it's other things which you don't particularly love, like you're all right with it, but you just have to be really, really good at it. And then people are like, why don't you just do this? Like you should, like you're really amazing at this. And sometimes it, it takes a lot to sort of understand that. Like, you know, you just be casually doing something and somebody's like, yo, Shalon, why don't you... What, you should have a YouTube channel, bro. You should have a podcast. Like, really? Yeah, bro. You speak well and you interview people properly and Ray, and you sound great on the mic and da 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 da. And like, you just be like, all right, let me try it. And now it works. You know what I'm saying? Like, you might have to have like a dream. When I grow up, I want to interview people and have a channel on YouTube. You know what I'm saying? Like, things, things. People and things and advice, and you just ended up where you ended up by listening. That that's that that's that thing, bro. It's not just allowing the experiences to be able to come to you, and don't be so close-minded to think like, no, this is what I want to do, and I've decided this from I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. I want to be a guitarist, and I'm not changing my mind, and that's silly. You know what I mean? You gotta you gotta kind of leave yourself home to the experience to kind to kind of do that. So yes, it was prompts from people around me. I kept saying, hey, you look like you're good at this. Why don't you try that? And I said, okay, let me check it out. That's where you got. So then what was the first rhythm you actually attempted to um, make at this time here now? And what year was this? Why not so good with the years now? But this would have been like maybe 85, 6. 95 or 6. 95. 95, 95, yeah, 95, 96. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 85 in high school. 95, 96, like fearless rhythm. Mm -hmm. Um. Which had, I don't know, it didn't really have any big popular hit songs. But if you're a Sean Paul fan, you'd know the song, uh, Baby Girl, Don't Cry No More. Mm-hmm. That, that would have been the, the record. That was a fearless rhythm. So we had Sean Paul, we had Don Yutes, we had, man, again, these artists are going to kill me if I don't recall his name on the rhythm, bro. But, but that was like the first kind of attempt at doing a rhythm. And the rhythm itself, the songs on the rhythm weren't really popular. But the mm-hmm. rhythm itself became a popular duplet rhythm. Because mm-hmm. I'm cutting a dub plate in my studio. So people like Renaissance Crew and them love the rhythm so much. They're like, okay, Jeremy didn't really get the premium records or the premium artists on it because I'm a young producer. I don't know anybody. Mm-hmm. But the rhythm is bad. So they would go and cut dubs on the rhythm like from the big artists and go play it out. So I think as a result, the actual rhythm got popular, the instrumental, more than the songs that were on the rhythm. You know what I'm saying? Because people would use it and they would play it out. And, you know, specifically like Renaissance, I have to really give it up to, I mean, without Jazz and Delano and Dre, them, you know what I mean? The whole two hard records thing and Sean and all that wouldn't have happened. But it was that's what I'm saying. It was a perfect storm because Renaissance was a song syndicate. They were there too, but you see Renaissance was a sound that could play uptown and Stone Love yeah. started to bring them downtown. So then they, they interjected their feel of what they were playing uptown downtown so they exactly. had a different type of style so whatever is going on somewhere else where nobody might be paying attention to renaissance is bringing it down to the man them now exactly and and the thing about this uh, we have shared experience now because we're all uptown kids you know between jacksville and later musgrave and you know mm-hmm. and yet we still have this love for dancehall music and dancehall culture you know what i'm saying so I think that's what helped kind of tie everything together. It felt more like a movement then. You understand? It didn't feel like we're just all alone by ourselves. It was a whole bunch of us. And we were getting recognized. And not only recognized, but getting accepted. And that's a big difference. So nobody was trying to pretend like, oh, we're going to act like we're a downtown zone or act like we're from the ghetto or wherever. It was like, no, we're just uptown kids. We like what we like. We listen to 
you know what I'm saying? Um, hip hop stuff and the kind of MTV disco stuff and that type of thing. And we, you know, we just bring it. Renaissance just bring it and just play that kind of music in the parties downtown. You know what I'm saying? And myself and everybody else around me too. We just kind of enjoyed it. And we were accepted by it. I think that was the best thing ever. So the downtown sounds and the stone loves and the arts and everybody didn't snub us and be like, ah, oh, look up to them boys and not about music. And they were like, no, nah, man, these guys have a vibe. And, you know, Delano was like scratching and doing remixes. Mm-hmm. And, you know what I'm saying? And dropping out those records and doing stuff which, you know, Butcher Banton, Murder of Doublet on, on Exodus, Bob Marley. You know what I'm saying? Rhythm and stuff like that. Remixing, like, I'm playing them down at, at, at House of Leo. And people are, minds were being blown, bro. People are like, yo, what the hell is this? What's your banton on a Bob Marley rhythm? You know what I mean? And the place was going wild, bro. So stuff like that Renaissance was doing. And poor people fed up, fed, 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 fed up, fed up, and scratching and like all that stuff. You know what I mean? So... It was definitely a blend of the cultures. It was an acceptance. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gave us more impetus to self say, All right, let's move forward now. Which, of course, led to the discovery of more, quote-unquote, uptown artists. Mm-hmm. Well, the you first, I mean? when it comes to uptown, the first uptown representative we know as an artist would have been Danute. That was the first, 100%. first yeah. one that we really knew about outside of the scene there. Trailblazer, trendsetter, Danute, 100%. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know, how did you even link? And, how did and, you link and, with him? And I don't even remember specifically. I think it's just all kind of one link. We're like all there. We're going to the same parties and people know each other and people go to school with each other and you know know of each other. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of connect. You know what I'm saying? Um, I just went to Walmart, I believe, and you know he was just there in the scene. But he was doing his thing before the whole scene started. Jason already made inroads into like you know working with Spraga Benz and working with Stone Love and working with you know Dave Kelly and like all these kind of people so he was there kind of blazing his trail mm-hmm. and then our thing kind of came along and and we all sort of kind of grouped up together and kept the movement stronger but I mean listen pound for pound though these guys that have made it now let's not get it twisted you know there is definitely no free pass for being uptown it didn't help anybody's cause it was one of the worst things that could happen to you it was like a curse you know what I'm saying? It'd be hard for anybody to recognize you and for people to take you seriously. All of those who kind of made it did it on the strength of like their actual ability and stick to itiveness and drive. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Daniel Pound for Pound was just a bad d- DJ, bro. Could just DJ against the best of them. Mm-hmm. I've seen him do it. I've seen him cut dub plates in the same room with like Cabra and those people. And it's got toe to toe with them. Without a doubt. And people just be like, yo, fuck, you, you can DJ him bad. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time you get to Sean and all of that too, no matter what anybody wanted to say about Sean and his upbringing and anything else about him, boy, I could DJ, not could, still can. But at the time it was like, yo, this brother can DJ. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So without a doubt, all of those guys, bro, had to really cut their cut their teeth and show their worth like in the real arena of dancehall. No free passes given out for being uptown. No advantage whatsoever from being from uptown. At that time there. So even... Because with Sean Paul, did you meet Sean Paul and Dutty Cop at the same time, or you met Sean Paul first and then Dutty Cop after the fact? So, how the Dutty Cop formation came into being, though, so I was, had a friend um, who introduced me to Dini Chambers, that's one of Jimmy Cliff's kids, mm-hmm. right? One of his sons. And Dini had an artist named Dadagon that he was trying to work with. And Dadagon came from um, 
um, well, drawing a blank now, Sandy Park area. <laughs> and Sandy Park in Ligonier. So Dadagon is the guy that had this thing called Dottikop. So he had, it was a crew of them where he grew up that called himself Dottikop and used to spray paint on the walls and said Dottikop, Dottikop, Dottikop. It's like a, not a DJ crew, just like a crew, friends crew. When I met Sean, which is another story we can go into, but when they used to come up by the studio, so Dadagon is being brought to the studio by, by Dini, and then Sean is coming up to the studio, and they're meeting up at the studio, and they get to talking, and they start to find like a friendship and a partnership. And when they're doing dub plates, Dadagon is always, you not know, a big the dub plate, you're bigging up your area, you're bigging up your set, and your crew, and where you're from. So Dadagon would always say, well, you don't know, you know, big up all the cup crew, like you'd say that at the start of the dub plates. Mm-hmm. And Sean's hanging out with him, and Sean starts to go hang out with him in Sandy Park too. And the whole Dutty Cup thing becomes so. Sean starts saying, Yeah, you don't know, you know, big up the Dutty Cup crew because they're bigging up the crew. It wasn't a musical crew, you understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then eventually they said, like, You know, we should just call this a crew now. And Kid Corrupt was there, and Corrupt that we knew from, from Danute, he used to hang out with Danute, and Corrupt kind of, you know, it's, came into the fold with us there. So Corrup is there, Dadagon is there, Sean is there, and they said like, yo, we should just call this thing, because the artists said, big up to the Dutty Cup crew, Dutty Cup crew, big up to the Dutty Cup. Then they said, let's make it a musical crew. You know what I mean? And then Lugaman and Masakid like fell in afterwards. Mm-hmm. And basically, that's how the whole Dutty Cup thing started. It came from Dadagon saying, yo, Dutty Cup, big up like that. And Sean adapting it and said, big up Dutty Cup crew. And then eventually that starts with Dutty, yeah, Dutty, like it became a thing. You see, this is why I like to have these conversations because you hear the name, you hear these things. I've been hearing Dutty Cup on those Renaissance tapes from 96, 7, 8, those times there. But you yeah. never really understood how it really formed. That's why I love to have these conversations. It was the, the theory behind it, I think, that I mean, I know I'm, I might be over-intellectualizing it, but I'm just trying to break it down as best as I possibly can. But the theory was like, it's like, we're a crew. And we don't really have much. We share everything. We're, we have one cup, which we all drink out of. Mm-hmm. That's what we share things. So it's a dotted cup. So it's our little crew. We have one plate we eat from, one food that we share, one cup we drink out of. This is the, this is the cup that we drink from. And the cup kind of dotted, but it's the one little cup that we have and we just pass it around. That's sort of the ideology behind saying, yo, mm-hmm. we had a dotted cup crew. You don't know, you know, you know kind of oneness, unity. Got you. And that's that type of, type of scenario. So I, then, I hope that if you interview Sean one day, ask him, I hope he comes up with the same answer. <laughs> but that's the best of my recollection as to why it was called the Dutty Cup crew. A hundred percent. So then, okay, so then it was Danigan. He was really the one that came. So then how did you meet Sean Paul in the first place then? So my brother now, Zachary, he's out there in the streets, quote unquote, you know, scoring for talent, going to parties, DJing with Syndicate. He's up and around the place trying to promote like, you know, our little studio and trying to get people to come up there to cut dubs for him. And he goes to a, a joint called Raphael's, it was called back in the day. I think it was on Hillcrest Avenue. And Raphael's was a ice cream shop. Mm-hmm. Um, but at nighttime, they had live entertainment. And they had an open mic thing going on at night. So a band would be playing there and you could come up to the band and you just said to them like, yo, can you guys play whatever song and the musicians would play it and you sing. So it's not like a kind of like a live band karaoke type of scenario. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And people would sit down there. So apparently he went that night and he saw Sean performing up there and Sean was up there DJing with a the band and DJing. Um, 
he was he was working with the band and DJing. And Sean, my brother, saw him, sorry, and was like, yo, this kid sounds cool. He, he sounds like a lot like Supercat, but I like him. He's wicked. I like his vibe. And he introduced himself to me and said, hey, my brother just came back from Canada and he set up a little small studio uptown. And, you know, you should come by and, you know what I'm saying? And, and maybe you can come by and record some stuff up there. I would like to meet you, whatever, whatever. He comes back to me and says, yo, I met this kid, you know, this Sean Henriquez is his name, whatever. He sounds a lot like Cathy. You should really meet him. I was, like, I was like, all right, well, he can come. Remember, I'm not looking for an artist. I'm not trying to be a real producer. We're really cutting dub plates. Because mm-hmm. this is before they're ready. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just like, all right, let him come, like, whatever. So Zachary was so excited. So Sean called the number on the card. Um, no cell phones, but landlines. <laughs> but, but Sean called the number on the card. And he showed up by the studio. So I met him. And he was like, all right, cool. And he's there hanging out. And a friendship built with him. As I said, by now, he's meeting Dadagon, who's also hanging up, hanging out up there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not exactly sure how, how, how Luga and Massey got there, but they got there. It became a little hangout spot because you have to understand, you know, I'm, I'm like Uptown Jacksil. So I rented an apartment. I'm like on the corner of this building. I have a little small built-in studio there. I'm a bachelor. I'm in my mid-20s. And I have like a big screen TV with the Sega Genesis and the PlayStation, bro. <laughs> so we're running like FIFA and Mortal Kombat and freaking Soul Calibur like all day. Like you could just drive up and just come into the door. So it's a hangout spot, bro. And we have a studio and went to music. Bro. So all these people are like passing through, bro. So like you, you, you go and look in the living room and you just see like, you know, Lexus and Red Rat and Wayne Marshall and Sean. And but these are before their big names, mm. you know what I'm saying? And like dudes like just behind that playing FIFA, mm. you know what I'm saying? Or or more or, or 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 any kind of video game like that. And then the little studios there, and we're cutting dubs. So basically, you can play your video games and wait for your dub time to go cut your dub. And then outside on the front, you see like the man I'm out there, like by the cars in the driveway, pull up, and you see like you know Adonai Sound System or King Adis or you know Babyface will be out there. You know what I'm saying? Or or Renaissance travelers, you know, box of them. Anybody would just be like kind of like out on the front, like chilling. But we're in cool hills of uptown Jacksil, bro. There's no bus line running. There's anybody who is there needs to be there. There are no people hanging around begging your shit and trying to get put on. It's just if you came there with the artists you're supposed to work with, you were there. You know, you know what, what I'm saying? Like, this sounds like it was an uptown version of Arrows, but it wasn't. Only certain sound men could come there and certain people could come there. But it wasn't just a place where a bag of people are hanging out and a bag of stuff is going on. Like a Exactly. Very small condensed area. Residential place. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You, you couldn't find, you couldn't drive from the street and look and see. There's no sign. There's no, as I said, public transport is not passing there. It's that type of thing. So you're correct. Only people who need to be there at the time would come there. You know what I'm saying? There's no vendor selling no juice outside this gate or nothing stupid like that, bro. It's a residential area. So, you know what I mean? So the people who were there, but it was a scene. Mm-hmm. And people were respectful of the scene and they could kind of hang out. And so Sean drops into the scene. So he's there. And then the sound system guys are coming to cut dubs. So they would bring a big artist with them, like a cabra, a spraggle. And then I'd be like, yeah, man, you don't know, you know young artist, it's not Sean Paul and whatever, and kid corrupt and some man and be like, oh, see, wicked, wicked. Yeah, man, I'm on some bad tune and dub and you'd encourage the sound system guys to try and get a dub off of them. Give them a dub basically for free. Because remember, these guys are big stars, they're not established. They don't have any songs which are playing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you had a good dub record, like a killer sound dub or something, they would still play it, you know what I'm saying? So, 
you'd encourage them to cut dubs from them. So they'd get a shot to do a dub. Is what I'm saying to you. So now they're up at the studio knowing that if I hang out up here, I could end up doing dubs for travelers or or or, 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 or dubs, whichever sound system. You know what I'm saying? And and that's how Shannon got put on by doing dub plates for popular sound systems at the time would pass through the studio. Um, King Addy's Babyface was really his champion. And Babyface was the first guy to carry Sean to New York to do a show and was playing all these crazy Sean Paul dubs, brought really, really, really pushing Sean in the early stages. And I'm saying big up to Face for that. Um, um, Lion Face, as he's known by now, not Babyface anymore. But but yeah. So it kind of started from there. So a sound system thing out of a dub plate thing. Me meeting Sean, Sean coming up there, he's hanging out. He's there every day. Um, you know, we're, we're on in this scene every day. I'm working. I'm out, out, out getting my props as a producer now in the game. You know? So I am I am bigger than everybody else in mm-hmm. the scheme of things. You get me? Because I have like a release out. So I have records out. So you understand me? So like I'm the producer. I own the studio. <laughs> you know what I mean? So these guys are just the, the, the kids, you know, trying to rise underneath me type of thing. Just hanging out there. So then now you did fearless. You said it did okay. It's a rhythm itself more bus on dub plates. But I think your second rhythm now, this is where we get into PG. This is where your entire life completely changed from here now. Take your time with how you even came up with the PG rhythm here. So the playground rhythm again, remember I spoke to you about the, the hip hop production, right? And learning how to produce hip hop and taking the breaks and 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 learning how to put together hip hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, music and hip hop production. So the time came for the second rhythm now. Remember, I'm still actually doing jingles, you know, to make a living because this mu- music is not making many living. Mm-hmm. Like from the actual producing records or working with Sean or all these people, all of that is just a financial expense daily. Yeah. So I'm doing my jingle jingles to mm-hmm. actually make the actual money to pay rent. Um, so it comes around time to make this playground rhythm. So my only way of doing production at the time was to produce like a hip-hop producer because that's how I'd learned production when I was up in Canada. <laughs> so I'm applying the same principle to it. So I'm saying, okay, well, I'm going to sample a piece of a record and loop it up and chop it. I'm going to sample a snare drum from another record. I'm going to sample a horn lick from another record. I'm going to use a bass line and filter it down. I'm using all these hip-hop techniques to build this beat. Mm-hmm. So I ended up building the playground rhythm, thinking that, okay, I wanted to have an 808 kick drum kind of sound because I love that 808 kick drum from hip-hop stuff. I'd never heard it in dancehall. Mm-hmm. So I ended up using that to make the bass line. Do-do-do-do-do-doom, do-doom-do-doom, doom-doom, doom-doom. So it's an 808 kick sample playing the bass. There's a sample in there at the beginning, which is taken from The Roots, the, the hip-hop group The Roots. Um, they're fully credited. Um, they, get, they get a publishing share on the, on the record. And I can't remember the other elements. I got them from someplace else. A hip-hop snare, mm-hmm. which I got from some other hip-hop record. And also the, the lead line, the bam, 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 was like a piece of an instrument, which I'd sample off of a record and I'd pitch it up and down and played it mm-hmm. as well. You know what I'm saying? So it's all hip-hop production techniques, which I was using to build this track. So I built up the track and I liked it and I liked the bounce and I liked the feel of it. And I was like, okay, this is my next juggling. So once again, rallied the troops and, you know, got Sean again. And I mean, Sean was just like there and got like, you know, Cabra and Spraga and like all these guys. Now I had a higher caliber of artists to record because I'd met them from the dub plate sessions that they kept coming to the studio. So now when I'd link them back, I'd be like, yo, I have a rhythm. And they're like, okay, this kid, 
all right, he has this wicked studio with his digital thing. I'll work up there and he's a cool guy. All right, let's go check him out. So I get to record, a, 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 as I said, a, a, a better, you know, set of artists this time around on this rhythm. <laughs> so we'll do it, do the project, complete it, and put it out there and it's playing in the summer. And it's getting a fair amount of response because the Cabra was the big song on it. You know, we want one of, one of them at Gallery with them at their style. Play some pampa like baby. You know what I mean? And his song was big. And Spraga Ben's tune was, you know, one of them one of performer, strong performer, banding lidang. You know what I mean? And his song was big. Sean now had gotten, this was his real breakthrough. Woman no wanna bet. Them are gonna feel violate. You know what I'm saying? So he got his breakthrough record. Mm-hmm. Renaissance and these guys now are playing clubs. Uptown clubs now, like Mirage, which I just saw Mir- Mirage nightclub at Sovereign. Big, fancy-ass nightclub. Jamaica never saw anything like this before, bro. Split-level club with, like, TV screens in the floor over plexiglass mm-hmm. and a big stage and a balcony and a private VIP with a pool table. I mean, it was incredible. So the entire freaking Kingston is coming up there, Uptown and Downtown, and places rammed all the time. And Renaissance is there as resident. This jack is, and, and um, uh, guys like Ramo, who was there as a resident DJ as well. And these guys are all playing up there. So we're kind of productions up there and getting them played. So the rhythm is beating in the club, bro. And getting a lot of love. Because mm-hmm. everybody kind of knows that, yeah, man, it's Jeremy's uptone guy. And it's, you know, Sean Paul, them is on the rhythm and whatever. And the rhythm is getting a lot of love and playing in the summer. Mm-hmm. So the story really goes that Beatle Man hears it in the club. And he sees one of the guys in Buttercup who didn't speak about, which is Mr. Chicken. Rest in peace, Mr. Chicken. Yes. So Chicken was there, and Chicken um, came from Sandy Park as well. And Chicken was a part of the crew and up in the early days hanging out. How Chicken came up there is another kind of interesting story. We, we can sidebar into that. But Chicken was a part of the crew, and Chicken was a person that Beanie saw. And Beanie must ask him, I guess, like, yo, this is your, your you guys rhythm, like, Beanie just saw us as one collective then, between Jeremy, Sean, Dr. Copuevo. And say, man, you guys are this. I'm going to come for the rhythm. I'm bad. I want voice for the rhythm. <laughs> so I said, all right, no problem. Um, no, sorry. I didn't say, all right, no problem. Chicken said, all right, sounds good. No problem. <laughs> so this little arrangement was going on between Chicken and Beanie. I'm sleeping one morning late. No, actually, not that late. But like 8 o'clock or so, my phone rings. And, and Chicken calls me. And says, yo, Beanie Man says he's coming for the rhythm. Sorry, coming for the rhythm. <laughs> so you mean Beanie Man is coming for the rhythm? What does that mean? Well, so I'm in the club last night, bro. And I love the rhythm. And him said, go on, come on, voice. And I'm going to come check you. And I told him the address. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, fuck this chicken talking. about it's 8 o'clock, o'clock in the morning, bro. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, all right, bro, whatever. I hang up the phone. So I go back to bed, you know? So look more, I hear my buzzer buzzing. At my front door, my front door buzzer, and you know, and Sam is like, "What the hell?" I don't know how long it was, maybe half an hour later. So I go and look through the the, the keyhole, the people, the door, and I said, "This artist, this guy named Mankind, was a dread artist, cultural artist." So I'd been to, to the studio before and caught dubs, mm-hmm. and I see him standing in the people, like, you know what I mean? So I'm just like looking at it, like, "What is Mankind doing? Time is it?" I see these guys are crazy, like them coming here to a cut dub. It's fucking nine o'clock in the morning, bro. This is some bullshit. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, yo, fuck this, go back to bed. Hoping they'll just go away. <laughs> so again, the buzzing and the knocking on the door. 
Like, I saw get up back again and go and look again. This time when I look, though, mankind is no longer. You know, if a man is standing up at the keyhole to your door, bro, he takes up the full frame of what you can see. Now he's no longer standing there. He's sitting. You understand? So now I can see through the keyhole like everybody who is out there. Mm-hmm. And when I look out there, bro, no, I'm seeing Beanie Man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm just like, what? Beanie Man? Is, I'm like, Jesus Christ. Then it's clicking in my brain. Oh mm-hmm. my God, Chicken did say Beanie Man was coming, but these men are moving, bro, like 9 a.m. Sheldon. I was like, what the hell? Get up quick, bro. Toothbrush in my mouth, hard, wash face. Bam, bam, open the door. Beanie Man, yeah, come from the rhythm. Yeah, like that type of thing. You know what I mean? So I'm like, okay, cool. remember, I'd never met Beanie Man before. This was like. So this was the first time meeting him, though. Bro, this Beanie Man was the biggest artist in Jamaica by far. At that time, he was out stupid killer. He was like the fucking man, bro. Mm-hmm. Never met nobody like Beanie ever. You know what I'm saying? So I'm freaking out. So I run quick, let them in, whatever, turn on the studio. And I had an instrumental of the rhythm which I'd made, put down. So I said, let me just load up the instrumental because I don't have time to load up back my little eight track system. And mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And balance back the thing or whatever. Let me just do it like a dub plate is what I'm thinking. And then I'll go back later and I'll take the vocal and put it in the rhythm and mix it and do all of those things. Mm-hmm. So I throw up the beat, dub plate style, and set them up just like I'll be doing a dub plate. And he did the song in like two takes, I think, or three. He had the whole thing mapped out in his head already. He had been rehearsing the song, practicing it, whatever. So he, he just did it. And like an hour later, it was kind of done. By that time, however... You know, Chicken knew he was up there. Sean knew. So now, now everybody's back up at the studio, excited. Because remember, if Beanie Man is on the rhythm now, that gives the rhythm new life, which means for them as young artists on the rhythm, they're going to get more airplay. So everybody's excited. You know I'm saying? That Beanie is going to come on the rhythm. So, so, so yeah, that's how Beanie Man ends up recording um, Sim Simo. That's wild, eh? Who am I? That's- that's crazy right there. But even this ties into another artist because this is where they got their big break too was Mr. Vegas. So Mr. Vegas was a singer that used to hang out with Donute. Donute was trying to break him into the scene and he was Donute was carrying, carrying, carrying him everywhere to every studio to the dub place and he was trying to bust Vegas basically. And he was used to, and back then of course the singer DJ combination was super powerful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Don Newton had a big hit record with Wayne Wonder. Um, excess amount of loving, excess amount, chubby doo bop, wop, wop, you know what I'm saying, for Dave Kelly. So the singer-DJ combination, like, bro, anything, Shaka Dima Samplas from back then, singer-DJ was how you did it. So Don Newton had Vegas, was trying to groom him as his personal singer to do his combination records with. So he had introduced Vegas to me. He had come up by the studio before. He had been doing dub plates. And Vegas sounded very much like Pinchers at the time and that kind of style. And when I did the rhythm, somewhere around that time, him and Daniel stopped linking and stopped hanging out. Mm-hmm. And he came back to me to voice on the rhythm. And I was kind of like, okay, well, this guy's not really with Daniel anymore, but he kind of was like, oh, please, no, I'm a bad tune or whatever. Basically saying that, not because I'm not with Daniel, but you met me and I know, give me a chance. Mm-hmm. So we recorded Nike here. And I decided to release it as the B-side of the Danute 45. Because in my mind, it was still Danute's association that got into the studio. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't press another record just for him because it costs for me to press another record. Mm-hmm. 
You understand? That's a whole other set of labels, a whole other run that I'd have to do. I remember them times that you had to go to your distributor and they would tell you how many copies that they're going to print. People don't know this now. Press. Yeah. So I'd go down to Jason Lee at Sonic Sounds, who was my distributor, and I'd play him that tape in his office, the digital audio tape, and he'd listen to the songs. And Jason them would know as a distributor, oh, you have a Beanie Man? We're going to press 5,000 copies of those. You have this person, 3,000 copies. That person, 1,000. And he would gauge it because it's his expense now to press records, but I'd have to go get the labels done. Mm-hmm. So I'd have to print the labels, bring it back to him and hand him. So he'd have to tell me, we're going to press 3,000 copies of this one, get 3,000 labels, essentially. You follow me? Then I'd have to go to the graphic arts guy, print up 3,000 labels, bring it back to him with the name of the artists, the credits, everything. So he could give it to his guys that go in the stamper room and have stamp the records and press down the paper on the record and boom, you, you get a fortify, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... I knew that I wouldn't be able to press another whole 45 with just Mr. Vitty because nobody knew him. My distributor would have been like, forget that. So basically the cheat code was like, okay, put it on the B side because you're just going to put instrumental anyway. You know what I mean? And then they're like, oh, okay, no problem. Yeah, we can just do that. We'll just put it on the B side of the 45s because we're not doing a whole lot of press of a thousand copies of some guy nobody knows. Because this song exists on the back of the Danube 45 to my recollection. And... After Beanie Man came on a rhythm and it started to really blow up again all over again, then this track is started discovering all the songs on the rhythm. Right. So as before, you would have seen the Danute and played the Danute and they're all right, cool. And Mr. V, what is this? Nobody cares. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I remember because I'm juggling, bro. Like, we, oh, you're not going to juggle 10 songs at the time. You're going to juggle the best four, five, six records. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So... So yeah, that's what happened. And I said afterwards, it, kept, it, t- it took new life and people started to rediscover the rhythm and play all the songs and people started to flip them over. I'm like, what's this? And then that's how they discovered the Vegas record. Right there. So then when did you really know that this Beanie Man was really taken off? Like, okay, we have something here now. This is going to be really crazy. So the Beanie Man record now, what happens is that a friend of mine who played on a radio named Jerry D. And I think it was our Jerry was playing on and Jerry D went to the same high school as, as me and stuff. And he's had a very popular radio show. So when I first did the Beanie Man record, I had it on the DAT tape. I keep saying digital audit tape because I don't know if you viewers know what hell is a DAT tape. They cannot do it. Okay, so what a, a DAT tape as a master. So I, I called Jerry when Beanie Man had recorded and said, yo, I have another song on the rhythm because I'd already given him the 45s and he had shown it love. He's like, what do you have? I said, I have a Beanie Man. Mm-hmm. What? You have a beanie man? Like, oh, how do you get a beanie man? Yeah, man, bring it for certain. Mm-hmm. So he says, okay, fine. So I go down to the radio station and I carried that tape. So he's like, you know, young producer Jeremy Harding, you know, he hit us with this playground rhythm, man. We all know the Sean Paul and Ray, and, you know, but we have a new song on the rhythm now, Beanie Man. This one is called Who Am I? So he plays it and then pull it up and then play it again. So I'm at the radio station. So he's like, yeah, man, this bad man is wicked, wicked. I was like, okay, yeah, man, thanks for the love. Man, I appreciate it. I was like, all right, cool. I said, when the 45 comes out, bring a copy. He's like, no problem. Mm-hmm. So I'll go home. This would have been about maybe nine o'clock in the night, I think, right? So I don't remember what day of the week it was, bro. Thursday, Friday night, something like this. So I'll go home and I'm like chilling at home, whatever, doing my normal thing. So he calls me like at 11. Um, so I'm like, what's up? He's like, yo, are you near a radio? I said, no, I can't be. He says, go turn on your radio. So I go turn it on. And he's still playing a record two hours later. Kidding not like playing a record, pulling it up, taking ads, talking, mm-hmm. pulling a record, playing it up, taking ads, talking. You know what I'm saying? Like two hours, bro. 
on the same one song. Bro. And he said to me, like, yo, you don't understand. The phones are lighting up. People are calling that crazy. Everybody just asked me to keep playing this record over and over and over and over and over again. I was like, yo, this is incredible. So I mean, like, maybe, let's say it was a Friday night, for example. Fantin mm-hmm. profusely again went to bed. By Monday morning, my distributor, Jason Lee, is calling me. What the fuck is going on? I said, what happened to you? Everybody's down here asking me for the Beanie Man record on your rhythm. What Beanie Man record? And I was like, I, well, I haven't brought the record. I just took it to Jerry. He was playing it on frames. Like, yo, I need to bring that. No. Everybody, every record shop asking for it. Everybody's coming in there asking for the record. I was like, shit. <laughs> so I ran down there with a dot tape and gave him the beat. Remember, I didn't even mix it, you know, bro. It was still just like on the instrumental or, you know what I'm saying? Like a dub plate style. But I was like, what, it was working. So what was I going to do? So I went and I took it down to him. And he basically shut down all the presses at Sonic Sounds. There are like five, six presses. Remember, this big manual label thing with mm-hmm. people pressing records, bro. He shut it down for that week. He just pressed my record alone. He showed me. Came back in two days. He's like, yo, come with me around the back. He's like, look, look. He's like, everybody just pressing your record. That's the only record we're pressing. Nobody else's song I we're pressing this week. The orders are going through the roof for this record. You know what I'm saying? So I was just like, wow, this is insane. And so the fortifiers were pressing like mad. And within like two to three months, I would say, mm-hmm. I, I got a call from David Rodigan, who I'd never met, obviously, I never knew. And he just called my house. Remember, we're all, it's house phones. Nobody, cell phone mm-hmm. don't come in yet, you know, but the house number was on the record and he called me. He's like, this is David Rodigan and you realize you've got a top 10, top five record here at the BBC, right? You know what I'm saying? He was freaking out. I was like, what? He's like, this record is monstrous. And it was this massive crossover pop record for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, in the UK. And I've spoken to David in recent years, and he was giving me that whole story about it, actually, about how he deliberately left the record lying around, you know what I mean? Like at the registration for guys to kind of find it themselves and pick it up and play it. And there was a pushback from him trying to push these reggae and these dance records on the station because they're like, yo, what are you doing? Like, you always come in here and try to play it, you know what I mean? And I think he, he ended up like getting the record into rotation after recall the story. And I think he ended up losing his job at that station. He moved to another station because of it. Cause they're like, yo, you're playing too much of this urban music. You're trying to play like on these radio stations. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it was a monumental achievement, even for just as a dancehall record in the space, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Not just for Jeremy, not mm-hmm. just for Beanie Man, but just like in the space of the world of things, like for that record to kind of really break so many boundaries, getting played on so many radio stations, like which would never play a dancehall record ever, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And 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 so the, 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 the phenomenal success of that record, like it, it 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 triggered something for the entire industry. Because remember, you said you're you were trying to produce hip hop and stuff like that. So it's almost like you inadvertently produced a hip hop dancehall rhythm without even realizing what you were doing at that time there. That's pretty much what happened because a lot of the feedback I'd gotten from especially DJs in New York and they said like, yo, the reason why we can play this record because tonally and orally, it sounds like a hip-hop record. Mm-hmm. So even though it's dancehall, it's being a man DJing and the patterning is dancehall, when we play it alongside the hip-hop records, it makes sense. It, it sounds the same. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's really the production techniques. Not at the time I wasn't there trying to be like, oh, well, I produce this because I used to make hip-hop and this is how I did. Like, I wasn't talking that. I just, we made a record. I just put out a record just the way I knew how. Mm-hmm. The, the, all right, the flip side is other records in dancehall were being made 
like by programming drum machines and by live players. Mm-hmm. So a drum machine would program the beat and live players would play in keyboards on top of it. And sometimes even live bass. You know what I mean? Like what we used to call phrase the rhythm. So if you're like, you know, ba ba na na ba ba na na ba ba na 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 like that type of thing. Keyboard phrases. You know what I mean? This was dancehall. That's how you made it. But I didn't make a record like this. There was no, I didn't make the keyboard phrase like that. I didn't use a keyboard. I used a sample. The texture was different. I didn't program with drum machine sounds. I programmed with sample sounds from other hip hop records, which arguably might have been like real kick and snare sounds that they sample from old R&B records. You understand me from the 60s or 70s and I resample them. So the whole texture mm-hmm. of the record was different. And the hip hop DJs in, in, in New York especially would come and say, yo, we can play this record alongside our hip hop records. It sounds it sounds like it's the same thing. It's in the it pocket. Has, it has that feel to it. So then now yeah. you as the new guy, the uptown man at this too, you have this massive worldwide record. How did the industry or other studio producers and stuff start to treat you now? Because it's like, you're almost like a, a wonder kid. Like, who the hell are you to come up with this? That's exactly what they thought. Who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. Pissed off for the most part. Um, not 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 really impressed. There are a few people which I'd met which embraced it. I must big up guys like Tony Kelly, for example. And I always looked up to Tony as like my 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 dancehall producer who I loved more than anybody else. Loved as a as a creator, as a producer, and loved his sound. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um so those guys were supportive once I met me. Some people like that, but a lot of lots of them weren't. A vast majority of them were not supportive at all. Because they see it as like, you know, one place that we're eating food from and who are you to come in here and just be eating this big food? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Why do you get this big monster hit record? We've all been doing this stuff and trying for so long. What makes you get this big hit record? Piss them off. The success. Why should you get the success? I had, I had a journalist intro, um, interview me and Sean once and said, why are you guys in music? And we're trying to, you know, give some answer like, oh, you know, I went to the school of music when I was a kid. And she's like, no, you, you, you went to college. Mm-hmm. You could have a real job somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like you're taking up the space of somebody who needs to be in music, like to make a, li- that's all the way they see it, you know, like music is a vehicle just to uplift. You understand me? People like out of their circumstance. So it has nothing to do with your talent or your drive. Zero. Or your- that's not how they side. They see it as like, this is a hustle that poor people can use to get somewhere in life. Or people that have not an opportunity can use to get somewhere. So yeah, that's all fine and good that you're a musician and you know, to, you went to recording school and you can engineer and whatever, whatever. But you have other options. Sean used to work at the bank, at CIBC. You know, the bank, you know what I mean? So there's basically, well, you could just go work at the bank. Why are you DJing? <laughs> you could just keep your bank job. You, you understand what I'm saying? So that was, that was a kind of, way that they looked at it. So it wasn't a very forgiving process by those people. The people mm-hmm. that embraced it were the artists more than anybody else. Not the producers, not the media, not certainly not the press. The artists. The artists saw it for what it was. We had a relationship with the artists. Artists used to just come hang out by my studio. You know, Buccaneer, all these guys, just come hang out, even if they're not doing any work. They just like the energy, like being around me, like being around us making music, like being around Sean them. I used to come up there and bless up Sean all the while, bro. Roundhead, them and Frisco and all them guys used to come and give him encouragement. I said to him, yo, don't make anybody tell anything. You're a bad bumbaclad DJ. We rate you, we respect you. 
Go on, and, do your thing, youth. You know what I'm and, saying? And Sean will take that blessing and like, yo, for real. Because if not, you pick up a newspaper and, oh, uptown kids doing dance or what the hell is wrong with them, blah, blah, getting them out of this thing. You know what I'm saying? That's what they were really, that's what was printed in the newspaper at that time there, boss? They would print stuff like run out and call it Uptown Rebels or some rubbish like that. Norbrook's finest and put little captions on the pictures. One journalist did that. I was like, why are you? I give an interview on these. Well, you just should be happy to get the exposure. I'm like, you're making, you're, you're clowning us, bro. Norbrook's finest. What the fuck is that, bro? Like Brooklyn's finest. No DJs come out on Norbrook. No music. Is, you see, you're clowning us. You know what I'm saying? Like some dumb shit that they were on, bro. Like, like that's, yeah. you know what I mean? It was rough, man. It was rough. Especially, and we'll go out places, our social media, and Sean will go places. And, you know, all our friends that went to school, they're kind of looking at us like, these guys are in music. Why would you do that? You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, you guys are actually like friends with like Elephant Man. Like, what's he like? You, you know what I'm saying, bro? It was, it was terrible. They're making fun of Sean. Dirty, eh? Ha ha ha. Laugh at him. You know what I'm saying? Because they just clown us. Like, what are you guys doing? Like, why are you hanging out with like these downtown music character people? And it's weird. The social, listen. And they might enjoy the music, you know, but they don't mm-hmm. want to associate with those those you, people. You can't be seen talking to those people or uh, no, associating with them. Or there is no, the, the crowd, the thing, it wasn't, you know, I mean, the society wasn't blended as much. It was still very, very separate and distinct. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it was so very bigger, hard to deal with as so people. Bigger that, than that, we just love the music. What do your parents now think about this? Now that you're fully merging this dance hall culture with these I guess the elephant mans and the beanie mans and these, what did your parents now, the politician, the lawyer, what are they thinking about this? They didn't really know about that. What they knew was that I made jingles. Mm-hmm. They knew I was putting out records, but what they knew is that I stopped coming to them for money. <laughs> <laughs> you understand? <laughs> so supporting myself, I was paying my rent. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And and like, you know, I got bought a car. You know what I'm saying? So they're just like, okay, well, good. You're mm-hmm. supporting yourself. And you're doing your thing. They weren't really aware. When it really got big, you know, bro, when Sean got signed to Atlantic and went gold and platinum, then there were, it, everybody knows. Then the attitude changed. And it's like, oh, it's success. Then everybody's proud of you. Your uptown friends are proud of you. You, 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 you know, your parents are proud. Everybody feels that you've kind of gone to that level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, but at the time, no, I think they're just happy that I was just making my own living, basically, and, and in not struggling. And not doing your thing, good. So then now the fight starts the, with the, some other producers, I guess the industry, they didn't really like you. But now you have this monster hit with being a man with Sean Paul Vegas and all of them, his first song. So what was your next move? Did you start to more say, okay, lean into Sean Paul or you're looking to find more rhythms to find more hits? Well, I'm still making more rhythms, but I think what started to happen is that I'd gotten success with some songs on the rhythms like Elephant Man, Log On, when I, by the time I did Liquid Rhythm, Liquid, and the yes. Tanto Mentro, mm-hmm. um, then the Sean Star, and the Beanie Man, the same who am I record to. But what started to occur to me was that I was fighting hits with these artists. I, as a producer, knew how big the records were. Mm-hmm. They were charting, they were playing on radio, they were in massive rotation. But yet, the artists them couldn't rise above their stature. Like mm-hmm. for as big as the Elephant Man record and the Devante and Tanto Metro record was, I'm saying these artists need to be bigger. You can't have a song in rotation playing. And, and also people watching this interview right now, what the hell is rotation? So we're talking about how many times it would spin on the radio. That was and a this primary, is like, um, like a Hot 97 and these 
big commercial radio stations here. Yeah, man. Power 96 in Florida or like the Hot 97 or, or, or 99 Jams or any of those kind of stations at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, even like Z100 in New York and those things, but the rotation that you're getting on the record was so huge. Mm-hmm. You're getting rotation that pop artists and hip-hop artists got. You understand? Your you, song is playing 60, 70 times a week on rotation. So, like The simple math then, 70, 60 to 70 times a week. That's mm-hmm. 10 times a day on the radio. So imagine yeah, being man. on your radio dial and you're hearing a Devante and Tonto Metro record play or Elephant Man record play or Bean Man 10 times for the day. Get in your car, you hear it at 9 o'clock. You hear it again at 10 to 15. You hear it again at 11 something. You hear it again. That's a hit. That's a smash hit record, bro. We talking mm-hmm. about. You know, that's a monster record. You listen to the radio 10 times for the day. So the level to which that got, the artist couldn't seem to grow. Mm-hmm. So that concerned me. And then I start to kind of feel that maybe the artists don't, don't have proper management or guidance. They don't know what to do to push their act to be the, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that led me to focusing more into, into kind of helping Sean, which was well, a helping because initially it wasn't an arrangement. Like, let me be your manager and let's sign this piece of paper and let me represent you. Cause I don't fucking, I know about music management, artist management, didn't know jack shit. But what happened is that people started to call me to get to Sean because it's my number on the record label, right? So people are calling my my place. I'm like, hi, you know, we'd like to book a show with Sean Paul. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, is you know, How much would he go for? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, so I, I two grand and like Sean Moore would be sitting there <laughs> like playing FIFA or something. You know what I mean? And I just look at him like, oh, somebody wants you for a show. Two grand? And he just kind of be like, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, two grand. And I was like, okay, how many tickets? And I'd be like, you want me to come with you? And he'd be like, sure. I'd be like, oh, two tickets. And I'd give him the names. And then it was like, okay, cool. And he was like, yo, thanks. I'm like, all right, cool. So then now we have a show. So me and him rolled to the airport. I used to go to the bank and take money out to travel because I'm saying like, I'm going to need expenses. I have to pay for cabs and whatever, and just money to walk with in case anything, you know what I mean? So I go withdraw money from the bank to go and go to the shows with Sean and just go with him. He didn't have a DJ, obviously, so I'm just DJing and a producer, so I'd play the tracks for him at the club. Um, so I'm going on, I'm basically, I'm acting as a bodyguard. I'm acting as the guy that took the bookings. I'm acting as a DJ, mm-hmm. as his brethren, as everything, you know what I mean? So I just started going and doing shows together. And he'd get paid. And I wouldn't even really take a commission, I don't think, out of it. Like, you know, for a two grand show, what would I be getting? That 20% would be $400. But it probably cost me $600 just to go on a trip. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So it was very informal when it first started. But that eventually just worked into me representing him. I was just a person people were calling. He felt comfortable with We started the more shows and the more things together. And I just ended up being his manager. And just mm. kind of driving the point of like, Somebody needs to do this part of the job because by this time, no, Sean started recording for other producers. No, because remember, like once you boss as an artist, no, no, Sheldon, you could, you, people would call it a voice before that. Nobody wouldn't voice Sean. Mm-hmm. He, he was just voicing for me. You know what I'm saying? And then now he's voicing for Tony Kelly. Now he's voicing for Steely and Cleavy. Mm-hmm. Now he's voicing for, for Jammies, for Arrow, for whoever. Like, you know what I'm saying? So now. I'm saying like, oh, well, he's recording for other producers now, so I don't have the burden of being the guy to constantly be releasing a Sean Paul record. Mm-hmm. 
You understand what I'm saying? That's let you just, you just manage, you just manage, I guess, the release. You just manage the whole structure of it instead of yeah, having Yeah, just right. Just mm. his relationships. Because mm. I found like that was a part that was lacking because mm. he wanted about good artists, you know. <laughs> Any good artist you can think of. It don't matter who the hell produced them, you know. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Good arts have got Jay-Z has had tons of different producers that produce him, bro. Does you get hits out to anybody. Not just Timbaland, not just the Neptunes, not just, you know, whoever, just Blaze, whatever. They they produce, they they work with anybody. Being a man, hit hit records with everybody. Mm-hmm. Cartel, hit records with everybody. Bad bad artists are bad artists, bro. Yes, it does help when you have super producers working with them, people who can guide the process. I'm not saying no, not diminishing my own craft, but Wicked artist, just a wicked artist. And Sean, I reached a point where he was just getting hits all over the place with all different producers. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to worry about being the guy producing. He's making hits. The problem is, what do I do with these records now? Mm-hmm. How do we correlate them into something that makes sense? Or do we try and do an album project? You know what I'm saying? Are we trying to get a deal? Are we trying? What are we trying to do? What about our show? Let's put together a show. Like, let's record all these records. Who's going to supervise him putting together a show and getting a band for him and finding a DJ to go on the road. Cause no, I can't go on the road as a DJ anymore. Cause no, I'm acting like management. I need to be, you understand? Answering emails and phones and faxes and stuff. That's wild. Because I'm going to bring you back to Toronto now, because remember you came and it was nothing really going on to me. And when you talk to most people, Sean Paul got his break from Toronto, especially when he put out the, um, Give me the light music video that was directed by Director X. Toronto was an integral part because at the time, Give Me the Light was a massive record for Sean. It came out to Miami. Um, and the record was huge. Juggling was big. Mm-hmm. Um, Triton was a producer, mm-hmm. not Black Shadow. First, first Triton, yes, exactly. Not not, not the current guy. Um and we wanted a music video because BET was a big hot happening thing and Caribbean Rhythms was a big show on BET. It was Rachel Stewart, who was the Jamaican, who we knew, and she married the guy from BET and she was a hostess on the program. And we're all excited and everybody got cable. It was a big thing in Jamaica, cable television. We moved from the satellite dish that mm-hmm. I spoke about earlier <laughs> and now we had cable, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so it was a big thing with music videos. So we were like, we need a music video. So we went to VP Records at the time. I was like, yo, this song is huge. We really need a music video. And they're like, ah, you know, music videos. And they're very costly and we don't know. And da, 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 da. Just give us a record first and let's put out the album and we'll see what happens. And, you know, and I was like, all right. And I was like, no, we need the video. And we stuck out, like, no video, no album. Mm-hmm. So we delayed handing over the masters to press and put a video. Uh, Maury Elias was at VP at the time, was our ANR and also key figure in the development of Sean. Maury was spearheading the project and saying, listen, I agree with you guys with the music video thing. We started to reach out to directors. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Maury's reach out to Little X to be like, yo, we have a hot Caribbean artist here. I guess it has a real chance of crossing over. I mean, Maury had worked before with like Cutty Ranks and a whole bunch of other people. And he was like excited by the prospect of an actual dancehall star being able to break into the mainstream. And Sean had all the ingredients to break into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. The first major agreement was massive hit song playing on the radio in many, many, many markets. Not about being brown and all kind of nonsense that people want to talk about. It's like you had an actual hit record which was playing on stations. And um, you had no visual exposure at the time. Think about it. This is before the music video, you know. So what is being, it's nothing about color and looks and image yet. 
We don't get there yet. This is just a record that is actually playing and beating the dance, bro, and beating the radio stations heavy. On you know a hardcore, hardcore dance algorithm. It wasn't like it was made for international, whatever. This was a hardcore dance algorithm. Precisely. Precisely. Hardcore dancer, them toe to toe with all the other artists on the juggling mm -hmm. and still playing and tearing down the place. So Mori had made that reach out to X. Now X has Trinidadian roots and X took it upon himself. He saw the vision and was like, yo, you know what? For real. Them time they like Toronto, like big up the Cardinal official, like them man was really holding it down for like mm -hmm. the Caribbean scene and doing the kind of crossover between the dance hall and hip hop. You know what I'm saying? And 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 he was part of the sound. You know what I'm saying? Um X was there, saw the vision, and said, you know what, I'll agree to do the video for like cheap. Mm -hmm. Like, the, I, I don't know, like the rate was, I guess he would just forego his fee and just do like a cheap. X was a big video director working with mm -hmm. big rappers at the time and stuff. You know what I'm saying? So X agreed to do the video for on the cheap. And so, because he, he believed in the project. And we convinced VP Records to spend the money and to get this video done. Um, based on holding the album hostage. So myself and Maury met with X. And then, of course, the whole Canadian connection comes back. It's like, oh, Jeremy. I was like, yeah, I used to live here in Toronto. I used to live. John Bronski was my roommate. And I know Big C. And I know these guys. And you know what I'm saying? And they're like, oh, yeah, Toronto guy. So the Canadian thing was there. And XM recognized that, yo, this dude mm -hmm. just was just living up here. You know what I'm saying? In the scene with these guys. And knows what's happening. And he has this ad from Jamaica. And the whole thing was kind of getting sealed up for it. And X did this concept with that music video and they used Ponytail, the young dancer girl and all these Toronto kids got a break dancing in the video. And it was like a, a really big excitement. And the video went on to be, at the time, I think, for a minute there, it had a record for like longest running video on BT or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And the whole world was just like, what the fuck is this guy? Like, the Sean Paul guy, the video concept, everybody knows the first time you really had a visual. And this is key that people need to understand. The record was big. Mm -hmm. It only got bigger because of the video, but it got to that stage because it was a massive record. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? To start off with. So, so the yeah, that's, also, that's how the Toronto thing came into the scene. And Sean's brother is born in Toronto. There's a lot of Canadian connection, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. With us, you know, everybody has family up there and, and stuff like that. Because even within there, even you brought up Cardinal, because I think before Give Me the Light might have been Money Jane. That was a baby yes. blue production. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I was going to mention Money Jane to action. And Sean had a guest feature on Money Jane mm -hmm. as well. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So, we were definitely using a lot of the, the Toronto connections and in the scene. Because the way that they embraced, not just embracing um, urban music on a whole, but embracing Caribbean music mixed with urban music. You know what I'm saying? And Toronto was that massive melting pot of, like, everybody there was, like, you know, Bayesian or Trini or Jamaican. And, you know what I mean? That's... Toronto, you know what I'm saying? This beef patties like on every corner. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like in the 7 Eleven, you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. how much more West Indian could you get than that? You know what I mean? So it was it was a very obvious connection to me. Definitely. And we're talking about this was when the Dutty Rock album came out. This was when Give Me the Light and all those stuff came out. The Give Me the Light would have been on, on the, uh, yes, on the Dutch Rock album, correct. Okay, because the first one you guys had put out was Stage One. Stage One did cool, it was everything. But it wasn't until you guys got VP with Dutty Rock. It was VP and Ad Ad Atlantic? So the way the Atlantic deal went down is that because of the success Sean was having with two mm -hmm. records playing at the time in New York is when Atlantic got interested. Actually, it wasn't Atlantic that was interested. It was Virgin was interested at first. So Sean had 
Mr. Vegas remix to um, Hot Girl Today on the Panana mm-hmm. Rhythm, right? And he had Deport Them, Tony Kelly. And those records are both in rotation on Hot 97, mm-hmm. which was unheard of at the time for one reggae guy to have two records at the same time in rotation. Mm-hmm. So everybody's like, okay, what's going on? Like, normally, like a one reggae record might play, but now you have two. Like, you know, how's that even possible? So that got caught the attention of major labels. And the first guy whose attention it caught was Patrick Moxie, mm-hmm. who was working as, um, I think, VP of Urban at Virgin Records. And Patrick Moxie, when Beanie Man Sim Simo um, blew up, he had um, phoned out to Jamaica to try and to sign Beanie Man at the try. He eventually signed him. So in signing Beanie Man, he met with me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he met with me. I knew Patrick and he was like, yo, we're going to sign Beanie Man off of the strength of this song and you're the young producer. We have a connection with you. At the time, I was trying to show him, Sean, I'm a little press kit and I was trying to be all organized. Oh, here's my artist I'm working on. And he looked at the keys and said, yeah, that's cool, but whatever. They were there for Beanie. So they signed Beanie Man. EMI Publishing came down, signed Beanie Man to a pub deal at a big launch at Pegasus Hotel. Beanie Man was signed to Virgin based off of the strength of his Who Am I record. So I had a relationship with Patrick. Mm-hmm. So when the Sean thing started to blow up now, Patrick hit me up again. He's like, yo, this is the same young artist you were telling me about years ago. Man, you know, these records are going really well and, you know, they're going amazing in New York and I want to do some work with you guys. Let's get you signed. <laughs> so his first point was like, let's put you on a record with um, with Beanie. Because remember, Beanie signed to Virgin. So let's do that record Beanie and Lady Saw and um, called Boss Man, mm-hmm. produced by the Neptunes, yep. right? Boss Man. Every time you see me come around, Boss Man. You know what I mean? And um, so that was the first thing that he did was to fly us out to Virginia Beach to work with the Neptunes and Beanie to get the vocals done for that record. Funny enough, you should mention Money Jane, you know, because the same melody that we, Money Jane is what we use for that record, for the boss. But if you listen back, it's the same cadence, mm-hmm. the same melody. You okay. know what I mean? Because I, I thought it was so good. Like I said, Sean, he was back that same melody from the Money Jane thing. Like, that was hot, you know? Um, not the same lyrics, but the same flow, the same mm-hmm. melody, you know what I mean? So anyway... So we did that record and then Patrick was courting us and saying like, yeah, man, definitely need to bring you over to Virgin. And he was all excited. What happened is that Atlantic got wind of his plans to sign Sean and Atlantic s- scooped in and went to VP and said, screw this signing Sean thing. We'll give you a label deal. So you guys can push things from the label and we'll take it up from you. Like if we think it's worth taking up, you know what I'm saying? You can upstream. So Atlantic did that and Virgin couldn't match that deal because they're just like, yo, we were just coming to sign one guy. I mean, the, we're not doing a label deal. You know what I'm saying? So like Atlantic offered a label deal with like distribution, marketing, everything, and to base to pick who they want to pick from VP's roster. So they ended up, so VP ended up doing the deal with Atlantic. And so Atlantic handled all of the big major label stuff and big budgets and radio and, and promotion, marketing, et cetera. And, you know, putting him on, you know, late night TV shows and, you know, massive touring opportunities. And VP still did the grassroots work of starting the records at radio and doing the street street team stuff. I mean, I don't think the street team stuff as well, but the grassroots stuff would start because basically the deal was like, go to Jamaica, keep recording, whatever you're doing is fine. If it looks like it's big, then Atlantic is going to take the record. If not, you can just put all your records in your local 
four to five people, them in Jamaica, the local juggling people, it's not a problem. They can do the licensing with VP. It's not a problem. We don't really care. Those records don't bother us. We understand that you need to retain the core. So we can't just cut you off and be like, you can't record for anybody else. You're signed with us now and everything has to go through us. They were like, no, no, you keep making your core records mm-hmm. and keep the core alive. So don't be afraid to like voice for a local producer in Jamaica and just have those records playing in the core. If it gets big, Atlantic will come in and knock on their door and be like, hey, you signed to us through VP. So thanks. We'll take this now, compensate you, and mm-hmm. we'll put out on an album or make it a single or into a big song. At that they're crazy because there was even Vegas now because Vegas at this time here, I think Vegas got the break international before Sean Paul. But he was telling me that there was a situation now with that same Sean Paul and Mr. Vegas song where I I think you guys wanted to put it on his album, but this is where he was going to get X'd out of the deal or something. I'm not sure. Could you explain how your memory, how you remember that to go? This podcast is brought to you by www.twolinedmusica.com.